0: Absolutely beautiful-looking girl, age four. She'd been injected by her mother in, in between her toes with uh, to put her to sleep. And I uh, carried the body. This beautiful young face, beautiful hair. During the autopsy, this sort of peel back the skin to to get into the brain and. It was just like a mask, and then you realise what people like. But what was the motive for the mother to inject the
1: brown into the kid? Uh, go to sleep. Just but, to put the kid to
0: sleep? So she could go out. No! Yeah. 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 <laughs> had this scream we looked up and one of the directing staff one of the sergeants in charge of the exercise were telling us to get back and it was a machine gun that had drifted too far right machine gun fire and it was shooting just below our feet (laughs) if it had been another three four foot higher it would have took us all out oh my god they found this guy, who was about 50, 60, wearing just a white shirt, no trousers or pants or anything, just facing them. And he'd been next to a heating pipe, so he'd sort of cook, cooked away as well. His arms had been cooked like a chicken, and they said, well, we, you've got to take the shirt off. So I was trying to get this his arm out of his shirt, and it was coming away like a chicken wing in my hand, and I, and I thought, I'm going to pull this guy's arm off now. And that... That's just disrespectful. Or well, his eyes were, were wide open, and I thought, oh, oh, maybe we can save him. But when I got to, it was like a mask, so the back of his head was completely gone. And I, I can remember the, the steam coming up from, his, from what was left of his brains. But you, there was enough thing in his eyes there. There was some presence, there was an awareness of what was going on, and he realised his life was fading fast, and he, he died there. I'd like to see the company taking file, and he said to me, "That's fine, officer. Have you got a court order?" And I was, "Well, no, I haven't." And uh, I said, "But well, I can, I can go and get one if you want me to." And he said, "Look, we both know you're never going to get it." He says, "You're never going to get this file." And his, his words were, "It reaches all the way to royalty," is what he'd said to me. Wow. I left with a lot of baggage. I had a very dark six months after I retired brain was just constantly going wasn't sleeping Um, I felt I was either going to choke to death or I had something wrong with my brain thoughts, images guilt you know yes I've done a lot of good things I'd also done things where I thought I could have done better with that A, a police officer commits suicide every two weeks oh my goodness yeah
1: Alright, you're in for a treat today Robert is an author here's his book, highly rated on Amazon link in the description box but it's based on stories from his experience as a cop he did years in the South and then decades in East Midlands Police so you could say he's done a life sentence tons of stories I've got two sheets of them down here huge thank you to Robert for coming on link in description for his book and the socials and um, before we get into the trajectory of his career, we're going to start out with a gripping story. Didn't you got uh, some kind of award for saving
0: a hospital from getting bombed? Yeah, so in 2000, I was part of the King's Cross uh, crime squad. So King's Cross back then it was a very dangerous place, drugs and vice. And they were in the process of clearing it up to make it the sort of gentrified area is now where the train station's coming in. But back then, we had 24-hour patrols to deal with the robbery and the drugs problems. Uh, So the Metapont Police set up an Operation Strongbox, which was the idea of bringing people in and doing 24-hour robbery cars. So you'd patrol with your colleague uh, around the area, Trying to deal with the robberies, but other things would come along naturally. Come along, and uh, one one night we were patrolling around the back of Euston Road, where the University College Hospital is, and we literally just turned a corner in a plain clothes car, uh, and in front of us we saw a group of around uh, ten to fifteen young Asian males. Uh, even though it was dark, in the street lights you could see the the flashing of the a flashing of blades, chains, and um, uh, metal bars. And a group of them had gone into the hospital front door, and we could see a conf- uh, confusion going on there and some sort of altercation on there. Anyway, we stopped the car, and I have to say, my friend colleague who was the driver, he got out the car first. And, of course, you've, you've got to go and back up your mate. So I, I got out and just armed with batons, so the um, extendable baton, the ASP, we racked our batons and charged them, basically, charging poli- shouting, police, police, police. Oh,
1: my
0: God. Unfortunately for us, they did starburst. Knives went everywhere. Um, chains went everywhere. But we could hear shouting going on inside the hospital. Uh, the group dispersed. They they ran off. A couple made off in a car, but one car was left with the boot open. Um, me and my friend went into the um, foyer of the hospital to find one male had been stabbed, quite seriously stabbed, and they were waiting for um, in the hospital for another rival gang member who had been stabbed and was being treated. So we got first aid, called up for backup. Um, got back out onto the street, and we found the knife that had been used, still covered in blood, to, to stab the person in the hospital. Uh, but when we went over the car, it was the, the the boot was open, and there was boxes of petrol bombs, so bottles with fuel in it, um, the the uh, bits of cloth to use as the as the fuse. Controlled the scene, got lots of cops down, but the next day the incident was mentioned uh, in the Houses of Parliament about once we'd reported it. It be mentioned in the Houses of Parliament about the level of violence, gang violence that was now occurring within within London, and it was used as an example. Um, so yeah, me and my friend we got a commendation for that, um, presented by Frank Dobson, as I remember, who was the Health Secretary at the time in Islington mp um yeah but that was that was you know over that six month robbery car period there was lots went on but that's the one that sort of springs to mind
1: let's cover this a bit more slowly then so you pull up in the car you see knives chains god knows what weapons yeah. gang of them two of you do you like look at each other and be like yeah we got to do this is there a decision making process is there, there wasn't just- a
0: decision making process um uh, the lad I was with, I'll call Andy. Very brave guy. Um, he he'd made the decision more or less, to be honest. Door went open, and I, I knew we had to do it. So it it all just kicked in after that. It was, uh, and we we literally just charging at this mass, swinging our bat and shouting, "Police! Police! Police!" So and how had... how high was your adrenaline going when yeah. that door opened? Pretty pretty high, but you also, I suppose there's a the motivation that someone's going to get hurt Hey, they're going into a hospital, there's going to be members of the public there, children, who knows what's in there. So that outweighs the risk in some ways, that motivates you to go and take, take them on. Is it in the back of your mind that there could be a gun? No, there wasn't, to be honest. There wasn't, to be honest. I mean, it wasn't in the back of your mind. It could have been, but... Um, the the level of these the, these were rival drugs gangs as I understand it, um, Asian drugs gangs. Their access to firearms, what I would imagine, would be pretty low. The risk of firearms were pretty low about that uh, about that time. Um, but there was, you know, as I've said, no doubt we'll come on to about my work around knife crime. A knife is the most efficient killing tool you've you've got, and it has been for thousands of years. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that that is the danger. I I suspect they thought there was more of us than there was. (laughs) And perhaps if they'd stopped and they didn't panic and saw there was only two of them, it could have been very different. But you get that momentum, that aggression, the speed, the shock of it all, and I think that all worked in our favour to help disperse them. So
1: as you are charging at them and they notice you and there's there's a second where the atmosphere changing, they start to disperse. Yeah. Does relief sweep over you?
0: Not at that not at that point, because, you you know, it was pretty obvious someone had been hurt in the foyer of the hospital. Mm. So you're then dealing, with, you know, what's the next thing? So we managed to disperse them. Is there still some in the foyer? Are we going to have to, we went in the foyer, are we going to have to start wrestling with people and detaining people in there? Fortunately, we didn't. They'd all come out, but there was somebody that was stabbed, they're in a hospital fortunately so staff were helping there and we came out and Andy uh, managed to find the knife on the floor lots of screaming and shouting between us and then we were worried about this car why, why was the bonnet why was the um, boot open uh, and it it turned out because uh, they had these petrol bombs in there so we, we suspect that that would have been the phase two of that attack really they were going to start petrol bombing places
1: good grief all right, let's go back then to what led to you
0: joining the police. Um, where did you grow up? So I grew up in northeast of England, Durham, um, seaside town. I uh, came from a solid working-class background. One was a um, Lloyd Pop lady, my dad was a postman. We lived in a two-up terraced house um, uh, surrounded by estates. Uh, and I often say there was uh, there was love in the house, but there wasn't a lot of nurture. It was mm. it was it was generally accepted that if you if you were born in that town, you more or less stay in that town. You get a bit of a dead end job. Um, went to went to school, and uh, the schools weren't great. I basically stopped going at 15. Became a truck driver's mate.
1: What didn't you like about school?
0: Uh, no one really explained what it was for. <laughs> it was just somewhere to go for the day. Mm. And my my, like say, my let's say parents, the teachers, no one sat down and said, Robert, you've got to get an education and get a good job. Mm. So it, it just all seemed a bit of a waste of time. And I was fortunate. My, my father was a big reader, big into military history, big into current affairs. So I learnt a bit through him and got an interest through him. But I stopped going when I turned 15 and would travel up and down the country in a, tr- in a truck shifting fridges, and which was a real good life experience. <laughs> um, and it got me to le- learn how to communicate people with every, oh. at every level. Uh, and I suppose the other cliche is, you, you know, people come up and say, well, I could have gone off the tracks. I could have been, you know, I don't think that was any danger of that with me. I had a strong moral compass for my family, um, but no doubt, People around me did go to prison, and some of them didn't, didn't uh, live that long. But uh, for, for me, once I turned 15 and a half, I, I knew I had to get out. Uh, I didn't know what, how I was going to do it, but it was the army, really, that I decided, well, I'll, I'll go and try the army.
1: And it was your dad who got your interest in the army?
0: Yeah, so I'm a fourth-generation soldier. Uh, my father was in the army. My grandfather uh, was in the Durham Light Infantry, won the military medal at the Arras, so it was like a bit of a, a local... Um, hero uh, my great-grandfather was in the first world war so yeah so I was, it was always heading that that sort of way um, so I joined at, at 16. What was your entry position? Uh, well junior leader so I went in as a junior leader uh, which is a bit like sixth form for soldiers weirdly <laughs> but um that was uh, on the south coast and it and it was good it was tough it was like a year training uh, basic training um, but uh, we did a six-week induction course, and then we were sent on an exercise called Drake's Drum, which this was me, nineteen ninety-eight, and it was a huge national um, exercise where they were they were practicing what would happen if Russia invaded. So they were using all in they were using all available forces, so TA, junior leaders, everything mm-hmm. to protect valuable sites or high interest sites. So even though we'd only been in the army. Six weeks, we were only sixteen. We were suddenly being helicoptered around between nuclear sites and um, communication stations and things like this to protect them. So it was it was great. We did that for about a month. But when we came back, as we'd done that, everything else just seemed a bit a bit less because <laughs> we'd, we'd experienced what it's like to be, you know, proper soldiers for want of a better word. But uh, no, it was it was it was a good foundation for me, the junior leaders, and I think it did help as i grew up when i went into more leadership roles so did that regimented lifestyle suit you did you adapt easy yeah i think i think so i like discipline uh, i like being methodical um yeah i did i did adapt to that i like the physical aspects the firearms aspects you in the junior leaders we'd learn a bit more about history of ireland we'd learn to speak german um because a lot of us would be expected to go to germany at some point so, yeah, I, I enjoy it. I had some good friends, which makes all the difference. Um, yeah, and then I, I managed to, to pass out sort of first time. And you went all over the world. Yeah, well, I went, I went to, so the when we was coming out of junior leaders, um, I was part of the guards division, and uh, this was 1989. And the didn't know the queen mother without, was either going to turn 90 or she was yeah. going to, Shuffle off the mortal coil, and the army weren't sure which way it was going to go. But either way, it meant they needed more ceremonial troopers in London. So um, I and uh, and others were expecting to go to Germany on uh, tanks, etc. Uh, we were suddenly put into the Household Cavalry Mounted Regiment to learn to horse ride, become ceremonial troopers, and yeah, that was very, very different to what we what we um, expected. How did you like horse riding? I enjoyed the horse riding and I hadn't seen the only horses I'd seen were the gypsy ones that were tied up on the estates <laughs> you know that was as closest I got to a horse but um you do a six month riding school and it's very physical very very tough um and but I did enjoy the horse riding um but what comes with it is 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 the is the kit cleaning the kit and the whole atmosphere in the place so this was Nineteen eighty-nine. Very, very different now. I want to stress that. But the Household Cavalry Mountain Regiment at Knightsbridge at that time, it had the highest suicide rate in the British Army. <laughs> it was built on um, uh, what would be the word: in- intimidation, violence. Uh, very um, tough, physical uh, environment. Not a nice place to be. So we were, we were all sort of. Put in there Um, and once we got through the riding school actually I had an accident in riding school so I was put back uh, a bit and um, what was the accident so I came off a horse so the the um, yeah so the uh, we were in we were in the summer camp so I used to move the horses out to Thetford at the summer and uh, the horses loved it and they go a bit crazy but we were in a riding school and uh, we're trying to get, I was trying to get a horse into canter called Duke. And it was notorious, this horse. It's been a bit of a pain. And the horse riding instructor was in the middle of the riding, the menage. And he basically threw his hat at the back of the horse. And the horse didn't like this and threw me off and stamped on my neck, my back, and then kicked me in the head. And um, I, I, I was knocked out. I came, came round. And I was in a medical room with a pen in my hand that was being moved up and down a piece of paper. And I I couldn't see properly, I couldn't think, I was massively concussed. And um, I was just signing this bit of paper, which is basically a disclaimer. And then they bandaged me up. And the thing I remember is I thought, well, I'd best go and tell my mum and dad I've had this accident. So I... I managed to get myself out of the medical centre, was walking up along the camp to the phone box and I looked like Mr Bump with like (laughs) bandages around my head and my (laughs) hair stuck up and I could see uh, an entire squadron, like 60 men, walking down to somewhere, marching past me and as each one saw me, they all started to fall into bits (laughs) bits of laughter (laughs) as they saw me, this Mm. dazed looking young soldier with... His hair and his bandages and everything, just walking up, waving up and down to the (laughs) front. So, yeah. So that was so I had that accident, and then that put me back a bit. Um, But then I went through the riding school. But it's uh, it's really when you get into the troops that uh, what they call the troops and the stables that um, and you start living on the landings. That that's when things change because you're protected to some degree before that point but um yeah it was really really tough doing queen's lifeguard uh a date it used to take 16 hours to do the kit you lucky if you got some sleep then you'd look after the horse we used to actually clean our kit in 20 minutes through the night in 20 minutes burst 20 minutes cleaning kit 20 minutes get sleep you'd walk into the showers and five people asleep in the showers because oh. <laughs> they were just that tired then you'd get up at five get the horse ready go on qlg and um, then once you got on there, the, the senior troopers uh, basically ran everything. NCOs had their own little scams. The officers you didn't really see. So there was no. There was a lack. Looking back now, there was a lack of leadership, lack of transparency. What went on? They were just interested mm-hmm. in getting people out. Um, yeah, and then um, I did manage to make my way through it. Queen, she, she lived the Queen Mother as, as it happened, so she had a she had a ninetieth birthday party and birthday parades. Did that? Did the escort for President of Italy, President of India, Lady Diana, oh Princess Diana. She was escorting her, um, and it, when it looks great, and there's those things you will always remember being on a horse in the sun, glinting off the uh, carasses and the sword. Uh, you know it, it's, it's, a, it's it, not it's a it's a view not many people get and it and it's fantastic and when you talk to people it's the thing that people are interested in but there was a lot darker side and, uh, and as I found out uh, researching the book and from my own experiences it it, it was even darker years before
1: wow so then you get to an operational regiment, and then overseas.
0: Yeah, so the uh, we we uh, we got sent from Knightsbridge up up to the operational regiment. The operational regiments very very different. Good leadership. You know, we had people that had been in the Falklands just a few years before. Lots of structure. Officers were more engaged. Um, we had uh, our barracks were better still a tough place to be you had to you know you you couldn't be shy and retiring you had to show that you were sort of uh, quite physical if it needed to be but a very different environment and um, more camaraderie um, go out you know drinking with your friends and uh, you, you weren't constantly worried about kit and what kit you had to do just keep keep the wagons up to date your personal kit up to date exercises lots of exercises in in uh salisbury plain and places like that but i i we used to go down to where all uh, the vehicles were and i used to find that a bit dull to be be honest (laughs) so people would be taking screws off a bit of equipment throwing them away and then going over to qm tech to get another bit of a screw (laughs) to come back again just to have something to do Mm. and you'd have all the stuff have been sent over to Quartermasters to get sky hooks and tartan paint and all these sort of things and uh, one day I just um, thought oh I'm a bit bored of this so I went back and laid on, laid on my bed and the orderly corporal burst in so the corporal was responsible for the discipline I thought I'm in trouble now and he looked at me and said what are you doing I said oh, I didn't feel too well corporal I'm just having to lie down he says do you want to go to the Falklands so I went yeah I'll go to the Falklands so right go and see sergeant such and such went over and then I went into a training regime and we, there was a section of us, maybe 11 or 12. We were sent to the Falklands. Um, so that was over Christmas of 91 to 92. Uh, and that was really good. You know, the Falklands is a wild place. It's got the largest uh, live firing range outside Canada. So you're losing live ammunition all the time. Obviously got the wildlife. You, we'd have these six or seven day exercises. Uh, I remember once we were going into a section attack and we were walking up this hill and I had my backpack on my rifle and and, uh, my head was bent and I I could, we were on a ridge and I could see bits of earth being thrown out just below my feet, about a uh, couple of feet below my feet. And I thought it must be animals burrowing into the ground. And then we heard this scream, we looked up and one of the directing staff, one of the sergeants in charge of the exercise, were telling us to get back. And it was a machine gun that had drifted too far right, machine gun fire, and it was shooting just below our feet. <laughs> if it had been another three, four foot higher, it would have t- took us all out. Oh, my God. So, yeah, so you had that. Wow. You have that with live with live firing. Wow. But, uh, yeah, it the was, Falklands was good and we got abandoned, so we went out for a seven-day patrol. We went to somewhere for the pickup, mm-hmm. and after seven days the helicopter didn't turn up, so we were left for three days um living off bald sweets what? and it all, it all went a bit thought of the flies oh. so there was seven of us all going a bit crazy with our helicopter didn't turn up the uh in charge of us locked them himself away probably with all the food that was left in a in a, a basher didn't come out again and we went all everyone was going a bit crazy with walking around with bits <laughs> of animals on their heads and and stuff like this and we yeah. we saw a light which is a across a sound so a sound is a big inlet and we thought well we'll have to get to that light because we can't haven't got any food or anything and it turned out you had to walk miles and miles in and we couldn't get across to it so we turned back again and we were running out of food we managed to get some uh um some fish from somewhere and put that onto a onto a fire and then out of nowhere. Um, just as though you know, you're getting people that are really hungry, starting to fall out with automatic rifles and ammunition with them all the time. Out of nowhere, you hear this, and it's a helicopter, a Bistos helicopter, <laughs> come in three days after and, and rescued us. But wow, so, yeah, it was, it was a funny situation.
1: So, was that the most extreme environment you were in then? Falklands.
0: Yeah, the Falklands. It was good testing ground later on for Ireland. The distances you cover, the range of heat. I've got a picture where we're sunbathing in the morning, where we've all sort of laid down on our backpacks, and I've um, I've actually got sunbath for me for my uh, dog tags. There's a big circle where my dog tags have been, and then there's a picture in the afternoon where it's snowing and we're laying up against the snow with all our um, Arctic weather gear on. I mean, the extremes of the because it's their, our you know our winter is their sort of summer, but the extremes of the weather. But it was very really rewarding. Taught me a lot of infantry skills, which I would then use in Ireland. So yeah, it was good. What challenges were in Northern Ireland? So Northern Ireland, when we went there, it was um, it was we were attached to the Irish Guards. So it was ninety two to ninety three. First time the Irish Guards had been sent there. Um, we were based uh, in Fermanagh. And it was, a, it was a challenging tour. Uh, at the end of it, the um, commanding officer said there'd been more contacts in that six-month period than they had three or four tours beforehand. And I, I think it was a bit of a publicity stunt to use the Irish Guards in, in Ireland. It didn't really work out. Um, I was part of a search team, um, so we did lots of searching of houses. We'd, we'd go to other parts of Ireland as well, searching of farm buildings, and uh, you get sent on a course about um counter-terrorist search and you go to a place in kent and uh, you you do these learn how the ira make bombs and uh, how they set up traps and uh, i remember going into this house which was all set up with different sort of booby traps and uh, there's a way that the booby traps that they had back then which was they had two bits of wire uh, one horizontal one vertical on the back of doors and as you move, there was a weight on the back of the vertical one. Um, and as you move the door, it would cause the two wires to to touch and that would complete the circuit and you'd, you'd cause an explosion. So you'd walk into these houses and you'd have to search to make sure there's no trip wires or anything. But I remember being in this sort of living room and um, a, a guy who was stood near me, he'd opened up this cupboard and it had one of them traps on it. Comp- and this was in training though, but so it completed the circuit. But what they used to do to to illustrate the point is it used to blow out flour. So he opened the door, connected the circuit, and he got a, a load of flour in his face. There was a lad behind him who was laughing so much he sat down on the sofa, and the sofa exploded. <laughs> Did exactly the same thing, covered him with flour as well. But um, it was a really good course, and you and you learn an awful lot. So when you were playing that. In
1: Ireland then? Yeah. Did you come across the traps that, and you spotted them? And
0: um, We didn't. We didn't. Um, we were quite fortunate, but you don't know, of course. So every, you do a drag and drop. And I, and I do my character, um, Ryan Connor, in the book, I made him a search uh, advisor as well, so a, counter-terrorist, a counter-terrorist searcher. Uh, and I talk about it there, about how you'd use drag and drop techniques, like a big, bass broom dropped down and then pulled back through so we we didn't find anything we did find some arms and and stuff like this and uh, arms uh dumps and caches whilst we were doing searches of places so we were we were, we were very lucky um, but you never know when you're starting a new premises it could be booby trapped you can't take the risk so everything's got to be done each time. When you were extracting those weapons,
1: are you worried that you might come under fire or anything?
0: Yeah, so I remember one particular time, we were very, very close to the border, and this was just, just before we were, we were due, due to leave. Um, and uh, the of Shikana was, was supposedly checking um, securing one side of the border and we were on the other. And we just didn't feel that we had had that safety around us. It was so close, um, and we heard a few bangs. The IUC would say, "Oh, that's just the IRA test firing." We we don't we don't know, but there were certainly a few bangs going off whilst we were searching that premises. And yeah, that was the only time I think where the the, the well the, the general sense in the team was this isn't great because Garda Shekin are very, very professional, but back then they still had, well, it was known that they had contacts and some sympathies, certain people had sympathies with the IRA, so we've been a pretty open target from one side. So why did you end up leaving the forces and going into the police? Yeah, so I I, once we were in Ireland, we worked a lot with the Royal Ulster Constabulary. Um, They were, you know, heroes all really, in my opinion, Um, very professional. The risks that they took were unbelievable. Um, But as well as the terrorism side, so if you didn't often see a terrorist, but we used to work with the IOC and I used to watch them as they were working on the drugs getting smuggled in from Southern Ireland and the burglaries that was happening, the firearms being moved. This was all seemed more tangible to me and equally important. And also when I was out patrolling, I suppose I was quite unusual in as much as uh, I would try and talk to the people. And um, I remember going through a a farm once and a lady came out very, very excited, shouting effing and blinding at us because we were going through their farm and uh, problem. And uh, her husband was was known to be what was called a player, you know, um, links to the IRA. And... People the other perhaps soldiers for their own reasons were either dismissive or um not very nice, but I thought, well, why not try and speak to her? So I, I spent to speak to her. I got a load of abuse for a good 30 seconds about, you know, what how terrible I was. But I just stood there, let it get out of the system, and then I started to say, well, you know, tell me what the issues are, what's happening, what what's happening when you go through, what's happening to your livestock, you know, where's where is the problem? What more can we do? And she started talking to me, and afterwards my corporal said, well, no-one's ever done that before, (laughs) and actually we could maybe use her to go through and maybe she'll give us some information eventually. So it took a period of time, but whenever we went through that um, farm, I'd make an effort to speak to her just on the off chance that she might say, "Her husband, is it so-and-so, so-and-so farm, or he, he was late last night again, or whatever, just to get that bit of intelligence, and I started feeding that into the intelligence system, and I felt I was that more inclined. That that, that oh. appealed to me rather than the um, the uh, over, you know, the the aggressive side perhaps of, the, of soldiering. So yeah, so when I came back from Ireland and worked at the IUC and um, Got this idea of how police of policing works about gathering information from people. I thought, well, I'll, I'm, I'm going to try. The, I'm going to try the police. So I, I applied um, for the City London Police, which recruited nationally at the time. And um, th- the story goes that uh, about three thousand people apply every year for the City London Police, and they take around ten. <laughs> So it, it is a quite a big attrition rate, but mm-hmm. I, was, I was fortunate. I was one of them 10, got in 1994, uh, and they, but they did like their ex-guardsmen, their ex-soldiers, because it was the Ring of Steel uh, time about about then. So, yeah, so I, I joined the, the City of London Police. And
1: what was your first challenges or cases with them?
0: So, yeah, so the, the City of London, it had the Ring of Steel because it had suffered the Morgate bomb a couple of years before, big target for the for the um for the IRA uh, but it tended to be um if something went off in the city it tended to be headline news so there was a fire at Nat, Nat West that happened one time um i we would stand at the entry points and monitor the traffic coming through Sometimes you would search them. Sometimes you'd ask if they had any toffees. You know, it depends what sort of mood you're in, really. But um, one time a, I was stood at Moorgate entry point, which known as Point Four, and a car came through the entry point, which it shouldn't have done because it's a dead end, did a bit of an awkward three-point turn and then stopped. And I thought, oh, that's unusual. So I, I walked up to it and the door opened, the driver's side door opened, then shut again. And I thought, oh, that that's strange in itself as well. So I went to the driver's side door, and I don't know what forced me to do. I wouldn't normally do this, but but for, fortunately, I did. I, I opened the door, and as I opened the door, in the um, the well um, of the door, I I could see there was a upside down handgun. So the the pistol was facing the pistol handle was facing me, and I I looked at the the sort of top of this pistol. Look at this chap. He looked at me, and then we had a bit of a struggle to get to the, the gun. So he we was struggling with his handgun, and I managed to get to my radio to to shout the emergency button. And I I put me with a firearm in 2.4, and I did manage to, to get to struggle it off him and get him down and pin him down. City London Police, have firearms cops everywhere, and I looked and I, I was laying on top of him with
1: his, with this gun out. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I've got some exciting news to announce. Michael Francis is coming back to tour the UK in 2024. The Remade Mentor, the Michael Francis story. Michael Francis, once named one of the 50 most significant mob bosses in the USA by Fortune magazine, and a former member of the notorious Colombo crime family, will take you deep into the world of organised crime, sharing captivating tales and insights into the Mafia's past Present and future. Join us for an unforgettable evening with Michael Francis, the original Goodfella, as he exclusively sits down with myself, Sean Atwood. With me as the host, there's gonna be a no-holes barred exploration of Michael Francis's life, including his numerous arrests and jury trials that ultimately led to his pleading guilty to a federal racketeering charge, a 10-year prison sentence, and $15 million in restitution. You will have the unique opportunity to ask questions during an audience Q&A session, making this event a must-see for true crime enthusiasts and anyone curious about the underworld. Don't miss this explosive In Conversation with Michael Francis live on stage in the uk this exclusive in-person event will be held in various locations in the uk island and scotland link in the description box below this video if
0: you want to grab yourself a ticket back to the podcast cheers the way holding him down and i saw the firearms officers were coming up in their bulletproof vests and they had these sort of jumpsuits, and they were what well, I'd know as pepper potting. So one one was going up, and then kneeling down, and the other one was coming up and kneeling down. Uh, and yeah, and then they got to me, and uh, got him nicked, and and took him off. But it, it turned out he was a, he was a foreign guy, and he'd just done an armed robbery in Tottenham, took seventy thousand pounds using this handgun, which it, it turned out was an imitation. It was a it was a blank firer, but. Um, yeah, that was a that was a really good arrest. I got, I know I got fortunate. got commendation for that one as well, um, which which was good. But again, not much time to think about it. By the time afterwards, you're like, well, that could have gone very very differently. And but at the the time, it's a bit of a survival instinct. Just just got to wrestle it off him really, and then work it out stage by stage. What was your first experience of corpses and deaths? Um, so again, in the, in the city of London, um, I think the first one I went to was, we've got, we had Bart's hospital there and, um, a chap had gone missing from inside the hospital, but he'd been found, um, in the underground pipe ducts and it was, it was strange because he'd stopped just above uh, just below um, an access, like a maintenance access door. So the, the people had found him when they'd opened this access door, ex, um, access door, which was in the floor, then lifted it up. They found this, this guy who was about 50, 60, wearing just a white shirt, no trousers or pants or anything, just facing them. And he'd been next to a heating pipe. So he'd sort of cook, cooked away as well. And, um, I was relatively new in service, and someone said, "Oh, that'd be a good one for Robert to go do." so I went across to him, and what I was really impressed with is the pathologist came out to that, and she was um quite a small lady mid sixties, and she got into our white kit and um crawled down into it and checked the body and everything, and she wasn't um scared of it and I was I was like oh, really impressed I thought well if she can do anything I, I can do it so we we go out and he turned out we'd gone missing from the hospital he had some sort of uh, disease which which meant he was always felt as though he needed to go to the toilets so which either thought they took his uh, his trousers off and he just crawled somewhere warm but the, they got the we eventually got the body out and then you go with the body to the coroners and I got um, a message to uh, it's been investigated by so-and-so di can you take all the le- take all what's left of his clothing off so there was this guy laid out on a on a table and he he'd blistered and everything down one side cuz this heat and uh his arms had been cooked like a chicken and they said um well, we you've got to take the shirt off so the, the coroner's mortuary assistant so we're normally really really robust um, and you have to be a special sort of person to do that. They said, well, we're not going to do that. You're going to have to do it. So I was trying to get this chap's shirt off, his arm out of his shirt, and it was coming away like a chicken wing in my hand. And I and I thought, I'm going to pull this guy's arm off now. And that that's just disrespectful, more than anything, to, to to that person. He still, he was a person with loved ones, et cetera. So I thought, well, I'm, not, I'm just, I can't do it. And I, I just called back up and said look if I do that it'll completely ruin the body we're just we're going to have to cut it off at some point in the future but um yeah that was a really sad case because he had he had no family he had a flat somewhere south London come up to Bart's for specialist treatment no next to Cain or anything just just gone but... does that affect you Robert did you have a
1: nightmare after doing that that night
0: no, not not then. And uh, I've, I've thought about this since that if you see someone living and breathing, and then you see them dead, that that has a more a greater effect. But very often in the police, the first time you've seen that person is when they're they're deceased. So you've never known them alive. So in some ways, that's easier to deal with. Not always the case, of course. But very often, when you see these the the, the people, their bodies, they're one part of a jigsaw. It's either a, a murder inquiry, or it's an unexplained death, or it's a traffic accident. So you, yes, the, it, it's terrible what's happened to that person, but they are one bit of a of a whole. So you, you, you're also thinking about CCTV witnesses. Um, you know what? You know the the, the a detective the first day of court. If it's a murder, etc. You're looking at those processes really. Children is almost is always more difficult. Mm. Um, I remember a case when I was in the Met, which had an effect on me later down the, down the line, which was, I always remember her name. It was a, a young girl called Jasmine, dual heritage girl, uh, absolutely beautiful looking girl, age four. Um, she had long, uh, like black um, Afro-Caribbean hair, lovely skin. She'd been um, injected by her mother in, in between her toes with, uh, to put her to sleep. And she died, and it had been in- investigated. And I was on the night duty crime car, and I went to it, and I uh, carried the body out, um, and then uh, yeah, the mother went to um, went to the O'Bailey, was found uh, guilty of manslaughter. But and I went to the autopsy, so I was assigned to the body, and I remember this beautiful young face, beautiful hair, and the during the autopsy this sort of peel back the skin to to get into the brain and it was just like a mask and then you realize what people are like but um because of the way she died when I was a detective sergeant many years in the future dealing with sudden unexplained death of children and as a as a DI etc then I would always check between their toes just to make sure that there was no needle marks and similar thing hadn't happened so, so children is very difficult. Robert, what was the motive for the mother to inject
1: the brown into the kid? Uh, go to sleep. Just but, to put the kid to
0: sleep? So she could go out. No! Yeah. 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 How often do you come across things like that, that? That was the only the only time I think I've ever came across it was, was then. Oh, my goodness. Um and what kind of sentence did that person get? Do you know? Um, I, 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 I can't remember, to be honest. It was, it was taken over by... I actually met the guy who was the SIO. He did my... So there was a course called the Sudden Unexplained Death in Children course, which you do as a detective inspector. I did that course in the last year of me in the police. And um, the guy that ran it, he, he turned out he was the SIO for that case. And after the course, I spoke to him. He'd mentioned it during that. Said, Oh, I was the night duty crime card DC for that for that job. Um, but it, it, yeah, he was still referring to it years later.
1: It shook me up just hearing it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they, 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 well, I did that course and I was told, this is in my last year of being in the police. I was told, well, they said, Well, we'll send you on a Sudic course, is what it's called. And there's a DI for when you're doing um, night duty, um, DI cover. So you cover the night duties and days. And they said, and someone said to me, "You'll never get one. Don't worry. They're very, very rare, and normally the child protection DI will take over anyway." And um, I had three in three months, three, three dead children, three ones. I got so that was pretty unusual. So, so this was one of them. No, this this was years before. This was when I was a DC in. What were the three then? So we had a um, so when I was the, my last year being in the police, so twenty odd years after. Jasmine, Um, there was two young babies. Um, One had had been born quite ill. It was during COVID. One had been born quite ill and had died in a child seat that had been next to an electric fire. So they didn't know if that had cooked the child or anything. But what I, remember, what I remember about that is um, the mum, as you'd imagine, was was distraught. Um, but the f- the father just had a had a horrible smirk on his face what? and wanted the attention. Um, yeah, and how somebody didn't give him a, a few words of advice, I don't know. But it turned out he did have they did have lots of medical. Uh, issues. This child. So it wasn't to do with the fire, but you've got to go through the investigation. When you, so you get that first call in, and then it is taken over by a DI from Child Protection. The the next one, similar circumstances. I think. Oh, that was a, a young, a, an immigrant family. Uh, there were um, a very nice Asian family that had recently arrived from the in the country. Young boy six or seven, had had eaten something the day before, didn't agree with him, then had woke up deceased the next day. Police were called. No concerns with the family then. Family were absolutely distraught. Medical issues that, that had just caused it. And then the last one was a, a girl that drowned in a, one of the swimming pools through COVID where people were sticking stuff in their garden, she was I think she was about ten or eleven and um she drowned in one of these swimming poles that were in the front. But the the issue with that is his her brother had recently come back into the address and he was on the sex offenders register. So you're thinking, well, has he has something gone on there and you're and he's trying to cover his tracks. Turned out it wasn't, it was tra tragic accident, had a fit when they were in the in the pool and drowned. With, with the boy who ate something, do you recall what he ate? Um, no, it was something that the mum had made up. It might have been like a, a stew or something, bean and rice stew. Whether that was connected, I don't know, because again with with the police, particularly when you're on, on call, you go to it and you manage what's in front of you and then you could work 12, 13 hours on it, but then you'll hand it over to somebody else and then you go back to your own. Work. So I was the, the missing persons DI at that point. So it's handed, it's handed on to somebody else, and then they take that investigation forward. So you don't always hear what happened. You go to the autopsy the next day, generally. Um, but yeah, the... Um, and you're sort of, as the DI position, you're the sort of coordinator, making sure everybody's doing anything else, and the ears in between the bosses. And the DCs do a fantastic job. Um, in the in the child protection generally but not always female officers super professional um, and and they certainly from my point of view because I was fairly new to it you know I lent on them heavily but they knew what they were doing all the forms coming through uh, everything that needed to be done and I, I was just making sure they had they they could get on with their jobs passing up the chain. Passing over vitamin investigative eye. So with that one, why is why is, you know, the, the the first one, why is the why is the father, who's a young lad, 17, 18, why is he so smug? You know, with, with the with the girl in the swimming pool, you know, why? Um why, you know, we've just suddenly got this sex offender back into the house. What what's that telling us? So I'd have that investigated overview. And once I was happy that we 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 could rule them out or rule foul play out. It it then goes into a process, really. So, Robert, earlier you said
1: even more disturbing was when you see the lights go out of someone's eye. Did that happen in your career?
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd, um, yes, it happened. So when I was in the City of London, police, we went to a traffic accident uh, and it was on Thames Embankment and a car had been driving really fast and it had gone into the side railings and pushed a young lad out of the quarterlight, he'd been thrown through the quarter light and dragged along and it, the railings had took the back of his head off so when when i got there the car was uh in a bit of a mess someone was laying uh, on the floor and this young lad was there um young afro-caribbean lad and his face was looking at me or his eyes were, were wide open and i thought oh oh maybe we can save him but when i got to it it was like a mask so the back of his head was completely gone. And I, I can remember the the steam coming up from his from what was left of his brains. But you, there was enough thing in his eyes there to, to um, acknowledge that the, there was some presence, there was an awareness of what was going on and he realised his life was fading fast and he, he died there.
1: When you're looking into the eyes of a person like that, what goes through your head?
0: Uh, nothing again. Nothing. Well, it's terrible, but again, 'cause out at the time, you've got you've got still got traffic moving. What's gone on? Is the car stolen? Has he been hit by the car? Is he, is he just a member of the public that has been caught by the car? You know, there's got you start to get in cordon's up. You start you talking on the radio. You don't really think about it at the time, and it, but then you realise that some will always stay with you. So that one, you know, will, will always stay with me. I think. And then there was another guy, again, when I was working in East Midlands, two brothers were stabbed in the neck uh, when I was a uniformed inspector. What was that about? That was some sort of drug dispute. Um, it was a bit after, but um, after I'd done the knife crime coordinator role and I was a, a uniform inspector, but there was a call to a stabbing uh, in a city centre. And it was about summer, summer maybe five o'clock. So it was unusual. It was outside of the nightclub but not connected to the nightclub. Nightclub wasn't open. But when we got down there, two lads had been stabbed in the neck. So there was already people when I I got there. One car there. I was perhaps the second car there. uh, Blood pouring from a neck sore. Put my hands over him, over the the neck. um, Trying to get first aid down to it from the back of the cars. Ambulances turned up, just putting pressure on the neck and um, it turned out it was two brothers that had been stabbed to do with a drugs debt, and unfortunately the guy I was with died, the one survived. But but again, you can see that it's the acknowledge, acknowledgement in people's eyes that they realise, this is bad, I'm going to die. You know, at a very, very basic instinctive level, they un- they understand. It's not the pain. I don't think it's that people feel pain at that point. They, 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 it's... It's just the, the, a confusion. It's a inevitability of the fact that they're they're they they're, they're going to die soon. Did he say
1: anything to you?
0: No, 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 no. It, it was just pure terror, I suppose.
1: Oh, right. So we were left off, and you were back at the city of London Police. How long were you with them? Uh, about four years. What other? Notable incidents were there during your career there.
0: Um, so the I think the other which shows what the city was was like. Obviously, you've got all the businesses there uh, on a Thursday, Friday night. It was like any other big town, uh, big city. You know, all the pubs would be full, and you get your pub fights. Um, but then every so often you get these jobs. So I remember being called to a job by a dog handler had stopped a car uh, <laughs> driving around the city five up and he would called for assistance so we'd driven round, and it was stopped somewhere the back of um um fenchurch street i think and when we got there there was there was two two people sat in the front and two in the back and those those four well like, i've just recently watched your britain's hardest men um, thank you, thank you. Amazon show, which is great, by the way. But the, the, the these four guys were like that, you know, mm. proper, big, heavy guys that you wouldn't want to mess with, professional criminals, in my experience, and then tucked into the middle of them was um, a thin guy, very young, possibly a student, holding onto a computer bag. Mm. And the, the thing that made it unusual is the four big guys didn't say a word. They knew as soon as they were stopped by police, shut up, don't say anything. The guy in the middle was absolutely bricking it. So we, we got them out of the car and these four big guys, good as gold, didn't know what they'd done, but they were being nicked. So we, we took them for the, right, well, the, who's, have, who's having this computer? Oh, well, you know, they're like, well, nothing to do with me, mate, nothing to do with me. So right, you're all nicked for the computer. Took them in and it, They downloaded the computer, which took a bit of time in them days, but we did download the computer. And it turned out that the the plans for the Rolls-Royce brand new engine was on the computer. And these guys broke into wherever it was being held, got the IT expert to download it onto a computer, and were then going to sit on. So it was like an industrial... Espenage, espionage, job. Wow. I know, and, uh, you know, if you imagine the price of that, even though it's plans on a computer, 10, 20 million pounds worth of plans. But the the these big four, you know, bruisers, they were like proper, I don't think I've come across proper criminals like that. Before. They've been brought in possibly from around the country just to get this done. Wow. And what a job that was, Yeah. So did they get sentenced for that, do you know? Again, yes, probably. Passed Again, on. I was a I was a PC then. It was passed yeah. on to CID. But the City of London would get these massive jobs occasionally that um yeah, they were really quite interesting.
1: Any other incidents before we move on to your next position?
0: Um say so suspect that links to guards and male escorts. Yeah, so that was that was the the foundation for the for the book. So hmm. Um, I was, we're into what, what was became known as Operation Impulse then. So I was a, a young PC, we'd have this, the uh, entry points. I found it much more interesting dealing with prisoners than it was still on the entry points. So generally I'd get prisoners, stopping cars, crime in transit, people with stolen goods, people with green uh, in the car, whatever. And I would got a particular arrest and I was moving... the the green to the laboratory to get tested Um, and the laboratory was at Wood Street and it was just near the Barbican so the Barbican uh, is a block of three quite very exclusive flats in the city of London they're the only residential places in the city of London and a call came out of a male being stabbed so it was literally five minutes from where I was so I thought I'm going to go to that so I called up yeah, I'm going I'm to make my way. Came out, went up to the Barbican, got the flat number, went up to the flat and because it's the Barbican uh, and a lot of glamorous type people there, I walked a- along to this door that was open and outside was this tall, thin, blonde lady who later turned out to be a German model. And so you can imagine what she- what she looked like but she was just going in there, in there, in there. So I went into the the room and there was a sign of disturbance in this flat in the main living room. And I went into the bathroom and the bathroom was tiled completely in white. So white walls, white floor. And then in the bath is a male with three stab wounds. But the whole place is covered in his blood. I remember the blood is in the grouting. It's all in the bath. It's all over the place. So I, I and this, this, but he's still got his glasses on, but other than that, he's completely naked. And I start getting towels and I ask this lady, can you get me some more towels, get me anything? And I just start putting pressure on. And I and I, and I I call up and say, we've got a male, you know, stabbed in the bath, life-threatening, need ambulance. Can get other people here. So, I apply the um, uh, apply the towels, and I'm just trying to keep him alive. Talking to him, keep him alive, keep him alive. Towels are filling up with blood, but I apply the pressure. The, the bath is helping because it's something solid to, to to push against. Firearms cops start tearing off, and it, and it, it. You shouldn't laugh at these things because someone is in a massive amount of stress, nearly dying. But it's the things that stick in your mind. So the the firearms officer turns round and and looks into the bathroom you alright mate yeah i just need more bandages more get me some bandages then looks around and sees this german model and he's gone from that point berry goes forward onto his head gun comes up and he's off talking to the german model and i'm trying to keep this bloke alive oh my goodness! <laughs> to try and keep him try and keep him mm. with us so yeah so um mm. the guy the guy's <laughs> Who's the victim? His is is saved. He goes for an operation. He is saved. The next day, I go to the debrief, and this is quite unusual for the city. They've got an attempted murder, so they don't normally get that in the city, particularly at this time. This is nineteen ninety-five, and um, I go along to the debrief as the officer that's been with this with this guy, uh, and we get more information the next morning, and it says that. Um, Chabot survived. He's done an e-fit of the suspect. The suspect says he was a soldier and uh, the suspect had picked our victim up in um, a, a gear bar on Charing Cross Road. And he'd said that he would, the, the victim had said that the suspect was in the my old regiment many years before me. But I was put onto the inquiry as a temporary detective constable, with the job of military liaison, so going to the regiments in the London uh, regiments in London to try and find out how this suspect was, because it was known he was part of the Guards Division. So th- there was there was quite a small incident room, and it was still the days then where there was a DS in charge. You'd get your actions, and you'd go out and do the actions, now and the actions for the for the military inquiry. At the end of the day, you'd come back and the DS would pull up and a drawer and get out a whiskey and right, what's happened today? I mean, it was, you know, it was still like that back then. But I carried on with my inquiries and basically my job was to go around the barracks with this E fit and say, Does anybody know this person? And I went back to Knightsbridge Barracks. Uh, I wasn't given a great reception, (laughs) but I I basically read a bit of a riot act and said, look, I I know all your scams here. I I was here for the best part of two years. I can get cops outside the door. You know, I can get cops searching every car coming in and out if I need to. Um, Somebody knows who this person is. He's going to kill again, or he might kill somebody next time. I need to know who it is. And I, I did get a name. Um, so then we it, the inquiry then moved to trying to find this guy. but when I got this name, the person who told me, he told me about this in the this practice of what was called company tyking. So it it's no perhaps no big secret that um soldiers from all regiments and all members of the armed forces, from about the 1930s onwards, we're, in, were involved in male prostitution in London. So they used to call it the perils of Piccadilly. And um, what happened in the late 70s, early 80s, it, there was this company taking uh, scene where if um, a company, big company, big bank, whatever happens to be media companies, were putting on, were trying to impress clients that have these parties and they'd get what was what was termed wallpaper so they'd get good looking girls to stand around then they started to say well, well we'll get some good looking guys to stand around so they used to go to the guards regiments big strapping six foot guys and they would be invited on to these parties and they get free drink and talk to the clientele and for years it it was you could argue it was maybe ill moral but it wasn't illegal but then something changed, and it and it started to move into prostitution rings. And uh, the the males that were being caught at these parties were, in, on some occasions, being forced into male prostitution. And it appears that our suspect George, I think we're going to refer to him as, was involved in that. And. Um, the person who told me his name said, "Yeah, George was heavily involved in that. He was never right since. He'd had trouble when he was at Knightsbridge first time round. Um, you need to look at him." So we we started to put out pictures of him, started to circulate him on on police national computer, trying to get hold of him before he hurt somebody else. Um, and then I, I then it occurred to me that. If this was going on, there must be a file somewhere. The Miller Military Police, special investigation branch, must have made a file on it. So I made an appointment to see the Lord Provost Marshal, who was the um, highest-ranked military policeman in, in the land, and he, he was based at Colchester. And I went along to see him uh, one day, big oak office, um, all the big leather chairs...
1: Hey, do you know what that sound means? Ooh, that's something I've been hearing a lot lately. I can't help but love that. That's what I hear when I make another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. The Pokemon business I've recently started with someone is absolutely thriving thanks to Shopify. Shopify accepts all kinds of payments and sometimes it's complex when you got on a platform but their dashboard makes it completely simple covering all your sales channels from a shopfront ready pos system to its all-in-one e-commerce platform shopify even gets you selling across social media marketplaces like facebook insta tiktok and youtube Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning new skills in design or coding. And thanks to award-winning help and with an extensive business course library, Shopify is ready to support your success every step of the way. So when it comes to dealing with people all over the world, Shopify is absolutely enabling us to smash it with our Pokemon business. Before Shopify, our Pokemon card business was in the dark ages. It's time to get serious about selling and get Shopify today. This is possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N to take your business to the next level today. shopify.co.uk slash Sean. Link in the description box below this video on YouTube. Thanks for
0: watching, back to the podcast. Pictures up all behind him, very, very, well-spoken, educated chap. He's an expect very powerful man in his way. And I I explained what was going on and I was a detective from the City of London Police and we were investigating this. And I said, uh, I'd like to see the company taking file. And he said to me, that's fine, officer. Have you got a court order? (laughs) And I was, well, no, I haven't. And uh, I said, but I can can go and get one if you want me to. And he said, look, we both know you're never going to get it. He says, you're never gonna get this file. And his his words were, it reaches all the way to royalty. Is what he'd said to me. Wow. And that's as far as as far as I knew. Oh. And um Yeah, so we were never gonna get that file. Inquiries are going on, and um our suspect, George, he was originally seen, I think, um, or spotted in a in a in a gay nightclub in Brighton, using our picture, our posters that we'd put out. That was rang in. I think he was detained in Brighton after a bit of a chase. He was then shown on PNC as being wanted for... Uh, sorry, being, he's abs- absconded a six-year sentence for robbery in Windsor. So he was moved to Windsor. Windsor picked up on the fact that we wanted him, City London Police wanted him for... The attempt murder of our our victim, and he was he was moved up. At that point, the the detectives took over it, uh, the the regular detectives. So they dealt with him. But um, the he was brought up to Snowhill Police Station for a period of time, and uh, the the jailer that worked there knew I'd been involved in the, in the case, and said, "Well, I'm I'm due to take him his dinner. Do you want to go and take him his dinner? Go back into uniform, take him his dinner. Then at least you can." See him face to face, sort of thing. So I did that. I went into the into the cell. Didn't mention anything about the case and didn't really say anything to him other than you know, here's your dinner. How you, how how you finding things? Yeah, yeah, fine. Cheers. You know, have you got another blanket? Yeah, no problem. And get you a blanket sort of stuff. Uh, but I did get get to see him. So that that was that was dealt with. Got a very nice letter of appreciation um, for getting his name into the system. He went to court. He got. A life sentence, which back then, incredibly, was only 16 years for an attempt murder. He admitted to uh, kicking someone to death in Amsterdam. What? Yeah, he. Um, but there was never any proof that he did it, but chances are he did do it. He was staying in Tattershall's Castle, which was a pub in, West, uh, in Hampstead Heath. We searched where he was staying. We found, weirdly, the knife that he'd used to stab somebody and a list of... High-profile uh, um, homosexual males that he intended to to kill or hurt, and um, he fully admitted that he would be a, he was going to intended to be a serial killer, and he blamed his experiences in the army involving company taking back in the eighties. So something stuck in there in my head that one day that'd make a great book. <laughs> Definitely. Make a good story. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I was carrying, you know, what became 96 around for about uh, 20 years. Uh, and what I did with the book is I combined two elements of my life, that that investigation and my time as a level two undercover officer and sort of uh, melded them together to to produce a fictional account. of this is it, it's a work of fiction, mm-hmm. but it's it's based on the Operation Impulse. It's based on the Colin Island murders. You know, we I, I looked at the the murders that were happening um, um, at, at that time in London. It's sent. It's set against the backdrop of Euro '96 which is where the title comes from. So, yeah, I had it in my mind that that would make a good story one day. Definitely. And the link for 96 is in
1: the description box. All right, so the next one then is you get transferred to the Met, Kings Cross Crime Squad, and your friend ends his life?
0: Yeah, so um, I transferred to the Met. Mm-hmm. I, 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 th- I felt I'd done what I could with the city. City, London Police, is a great organisation, fantastic people but it was either all or nothing and I wanted a constant flow. I Mm -hmm. I had ideas of um, getting involved in covert operations and I felt that was the place where I wanted to be. So transferred, went to Islington as a uniform officer uh, for a few years, which was, very, very interesting place to work. Islington, you have one hand, you've got the high, the, these very expensive, exclusive houses of Tony Blair was living there, More Mall and places, people like that. And then you have these estates, like the Caledonia Estate, the Marquis Estate, <laughs> I don't know if it's an area you, you know. But, uh, and they, one tent off, fed off the other. You've got Upper Street with all the bars there. It's a really interesting place, constantly. I remember um, we had, uh, so on the Millennium, uh, we sat at the back of Smithfield Meat Market, all our cars, and someone passed around a drink, which I'm sure was lemonade. Sean, and we had a, we had a quick drink of of this lemonade, and then we we all got sent to a call, which was the the second call ever in the millennium, and it was a domestic, mm. <laughs> and um, we went to this went to this domestic that was going on, and it was um African uh, guy that had beaten up his his partner and and at midnight. We were all seeing the fireworks that were coming in from the from the the river. Uh, about three minutes past midnight, I'm rolling around in a bedroom floor with this black chap who's who's trying to get away from me, and it was just really surreal. I and mean, we eventually he's Nick, but we think that was the first ever domestic of the new millennium. You know, you know it's a bit sad for humanity, but. But, yeah, so I was at Islington for a, a bit. Really, Again, really, really good team. Uh, but I wanted to go into the covert world, so I went to the Kings Cross Crime Squad, which I talked about a bit earlier. Very work hard, play hard. Very, very work hard, play hard. So The, the, the first day um, you, you turn up there and you get given all this kit and they say, right, we've got a briefing in, in the annex at uh, 9 o'clock. So, you go down from the station, go to the annex, and they basically say, Right, everyone's going to take a day off from now, sign this shit. So, you took a day off, and, and the annex was basically a pub, and you, and you were there, and it was a uh, big drinking culture back then. And it, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was clever of the mm-hmm. DSs because you, well, there was three of us all joined at new time, you're getting involved with very, very tight unit. So it was a way of breaking the ice. You had to stand up, tell a joke on the table. They were betting which side a packet of crisps would land for £20 and, and things like this. And you <sighs> you basically just got a few bevvies down throughout that day. Next day you come back in, it's full on. You know, you, you're working. You might start work at 8 o'clock in the morning, do a few patrols. S- suddenly 3 o'clock in the afternoon, somebody's moving drugs from one address to the other address. We'd sit up on it. We'd, we'd what was termed a jump on. We would we would get this information in. We would spot the drug dealer that was moving, and then we would take them out, and then do all the searches where they come from, and that would take you to three, four o'clock in the morning dealing with it. You'd get up at eight o'clock and you'd do it again, and you'd be hanging around. Uh, we slept. You slept in the station it's very often you'd be off down to Heathrow Airport because you've got some information there, going around King's Cross. So it, it, it was, uh, and then that was my first ex, um, exposure of test purchase operations, which is now called Level 2 um, Undercover Operations. And it's this idea that uh, police officers would go out and buy drugs or stolen um, property or firearms from people And the test purchase element comes from the fact is it actually stolen you're testing the evidence sort of thing and we used to run a lot of them operations around king's cross and uh, i'd be responsible for the getting them to court and um doing the files and you know um dealing with the prisoners etc but I, i i thought there was something in me that thought i think i could do the the level two work i think i could do the test purchase work so I applied to go on a, on a course. So you get sent to Hendon and there was 45 of us. You had to get there on a Sunday night and there's like 45 of you in this big classroom. And, they uh, they talk to you, give you lessons, uh, lectures till about midnight. Then they would say, oh, we're going to have, um, we are going to have a, a corridor party and, uh, they get you out in the corridor and there's alcohol there and they're watching to see who goes to the alcohol and who doesn't. So I, I always thought, I'm not going to start drinking now. I don't know if I'm back up with this. Some of them did. They went there in the morning. <laughs> you know, they, they'd been gone. You do a whole lot of lectures like next day and it's terms for drug use, weights and measures, how to roll a spliff <laughs> so you don't, look, you don't look out of place. Um, the law... Is massive. You're in a funny world, and I do talk about it in the book about your. On one side of your brain, you're having to be like a, a drug user, and, and and fit in. The other side of your brain, you're a cop thinking of all the legal implications that what well, everything you do. Uh, and it is a challenging course. And the way that they do it is they give you lectures throughout the day. When you get to five o'clock, they say right, here's your scenarios. Go off to this part of the of the of the um, camp. And uh, you'll see somebody there, and you'll go up, and you'll. And there's someone to say right. There's you're going to walk into a room. There's a there's a there's a chap in there. It, it, it's a pub. Imagine it's a pub. You have got to try and get a telephone number from that from that bloke. So you walk into a room, a bit like this. You sit down. It's lots, lots of acting skills. Pretend you're. How are you doing, mate? Yeah. Okay. Have you got a light or anything? And then you just start building a rapport. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I will tell you what. Give us gives you a number. And we'll, we'll sort some Okay, so you come back out, go back out, you get debriefed. Did you get a number? Yes. What else did you find out? Okay. And then they say to you, okay, go to room four C. So you find four C. You walk into a room and you see other people in the course there, and you sit down. You think, oh, well, what's happening here? And anyway, somebody comes in for the instructors to come in and say, right, you've all passed. Congratulations. you then realize, and it's like a 50/50 audition, that everybody who was in that room has gone, and you go back when you go back to your accommodation, they've all gone already, and it keeps going like this, scenario, scenario after scenario, and I, I got one, and one, one thing I think did help me is um, I got one right you're going to meet somebody in a car, they're going to come out of the car and you're going to try and buy drugs for them. And I was walking, <laughs> I was walking down to where this meet was going to be, and there were some builders. Actually working on the and there was a there was a pair of workies gloves. So I thought, oh, they might be quite a good prop. So I picked up the workies <laughs> glove and stuck them in my back pocket. So I make these people come out of the car and of course they're giving you a hard time because they want to put you in the press. Why are you here? Why well, you're you're not from London. You're from up north somewhere. Oh, I'm working here, mate. No, oh, I've got my gloves, I'm working <laughs> here. And I think they like that. That would use me initiative. <laughs> so did did the, the mock deal, if you like okay, good, what details I get? Go to this room. So it, it keeps going down and going down and going like that. So you're constantly under pressure wondering, sat in a room thinking, well, am I in the field one or am I in the past one? Until eventually there was about 10 of us left. And uh, the very last day it's all caught. So on the, on the deployments you've had, these practice deployments you have, you have different sets of notebooks and then you go into a mock court. And the instructors are grilling you, and they're giving you really hard time. Well, why did you say this? I put it to you, officer, that you were sharing that, and and you took and you you encouraged my client to buy these drugs, and they didn't want to dwell, sell these drugs. And you've got to just be very black and white and stick stick to your evidence. Anyway, I, I passed it, and I, I was then attached to so Ten, um, uh, which is the, the the covert unit. And from there, then I, I did a number of different deployments. Um, Any
1: hurry situations?
0: Yeah, I mean it is. It is the, the main thing you get is 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 fear beforehand. You get your stomach turning, and because um, you you know you, you've seen the videos where people have been stripped searched. You've seen the videos of people have been bundled off into cars, and you're thinking, is this going to happen to me? So yeah, I had uh, a couple. I was once pulled into a telephone kiosk. By somebody who I was trying to to his, I was trying to buy off his mate, but this other guy took a dis, uh, dislike to me, and he was trying to put. a... So they used to make pipes out of um. How like to say that white pipes. Go for it, yeah. Out of um, miniatures, alcoholic miniatures, and they put gauze in there, etc. And um, this guy Jamaican. Generally, we were. We were buying from Jamaicans about that time. So this would have been 2000s. And he was trying to put a pipe in my mouth and light it. And I was keeping him away, just pushing away, pushing away. But fortunately, you have people around you that are going to keep an eye on you. And one of them came up and pretended to use the phone. What are you two junkies doing in here? Get out, sort of thing, to give me a chance to to run off. So I <laughs> managed, to, managed to run off. And then... Another another time we were working out I was working on a job near White City. I used to walk past the Queen's Park Rangers ground every day to go to work. And as I was to, to go up to the, what the term a front line, which was generally a, a, a big line of shops. And it was a mixture of Jamaican and um so the some of the Jamaicans you'd see that they'd, they'd literally have the Miami penitentiary underwear on like they'd have their taxi bottoms really low and you could see Miami penitentiary on their on their underwear because they would they would have literally got out of jail at Miami been flown straight over to London to start dealing over here but there was there was you know second generation um Jamaicans as well are English guys and then um some of the nicest people I met with Jamaican drug dealers they were like really up for a good time and very friendly most of the time but there was always this edge to them and I was I was walking past um, Queen's Park Rangers ground and I got a call on one of my mobiles right take a seat take a seat just wait there pretend you're begging so I went down as if I was begging and then the, the guy I knew I was dealing off I knew his car and I bought from him before he drove past but he was now wearing a bulletproof vest in this car, and, I, and and he drove past me. I thought, well, that's that's why they've asked me to stop. Have you seen this? Yes, I've seen it. What do you want to do? I'll I'll go on. I'll go on. I'll, I'll keep going. So I walked up the front line and walked onto these sets of streets. And it was this is about me, I don't know, second or third by from him. And as I was walking up, he turned to the bloke he was talking to, and he put his two fingers together and the thumb out in the sort of traditional gun sign, and he pointed it at the bloke he was talking to's head and went and bam, bam like that and then he used the same two fingers to gesture towards me i thought oh no this this doesn't, doesn't look great and i and i'd bought and i'd he'd served me up before but it'd always been all right so i thought i'll just i'll I'll go with it i've I've got a bit of protection around me i'll go with it but he started walking around the back of the shops as well and i thought oh this isn't this isn't great but I thought, well, I'll, I'll keep going. I'll, I'll front it out. I'll front it out, and you can imagine the protection. of things. he's gone around the back of the shops now. He's gone around the back of the shops. So I went around the back of the shops, and he just set me up. I don't know. I don't know what I, it, there was. There was. There was no hassle. You know, he showed them the the money, hand over what I was buying, into my pocket, and we walked back around. So whether he mistook me for somebody else and he was just telling the telling the story, maybe he wanted to put a frightness on me. I don't know, but that that was Harry walking around that corner i thought well there's other people out there waiting for me if i turned and run that would be the game up so i'd have to just what 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 would uh, you if you're desperate for your brown and your white you would just go with it if if you were if you were a proper drug user you'd go with it you wouldn't turn and run for that so i i, I, I fronted it out unfortunately it was it was okay
1: what about when you were doing the jump ons
0: did you get a resistance, weapons, dog attacks, anything like that? So what had that had happened, we we didn't didn't really it was weirdly, it was I think the the, the the sergeant who was in charge of the unit, who was from my neck of the woods, thought I was a bit a bit of a nutter. So generally it was my job <laughs> my job to walk up to these people first and start a fight with them. Jump on them first. And then loads of people come out the <laughs> come out of the woodwork. Um so they would they would struggle a little bit, but what started to happen was is they started to put hypodermic needles around their their clothing mm. so they used to because if they wear tracky tops, tracksy bottoms, they'd put needles into where your cords were, or they'd put them underneath their arms of the, so they had to be careful as well, but the whole idea was so the whole, it was like an arms race. So we started to jump on the, the drug dealers, they started to use hypodermic needles, we started to use metal chain gloves so we could grab them. You know, so it was it was constantly going up as to what what you would done. I've got to be honest, very often there were young, terrified lads that had got them in that, that had, had listened to the listened to the press about the big life of a drug dealer, and then suddenly they're hit with reality of Actually, that it's a really dangerous job, not only from the the police, but from other drug dealers. A lot of them are in debt bondage. They're absolutely terrified, um, and and generally, once we once you got hold hold of them, and you would always say to them, "Look, it's over, mate. It's over. You can relax. You can just stop and let the process go. It's over." Very often, there was a sense of relief. Great, I've been nicked now. No one's going to bother me anymore. I want, I'll be able to tell my main distributor that oh, I've, I've got the police all over me now. And once we got them back into the into the me start processing. They wouldn't necessarily cooperate in interview, but they wouldn't be. And very often, the mum and, mum would come up and pick them up, and they'd be absolutely terrified of their of their you know? mum. So it, yeah, and, and you could argue we were. Cutting the grass, but you've got to do something. You can't just let it go. You've got to do something. You've got to do something. Even it was just taking fifty bags of white off the street. It was it was doing it was doing something. Maybe we did enough to stop that lad go from doing it again. Um
1: so yeah. So why the transfer to East Midlands, please?
0: So um I uh, we got Got married, I met a girl who was from the Midlands, looked at various forces, went to the East Midlands Police. Um, I went to a county force there and, you know, the the perception is it's very quiet, but it was very, very different. There was far fewer of you from London. Um, They're very stretched. You have rural policing, which is very different from urban policing. You have the big cities, um, Nottingham, Leicester, and Derby, which is a big, big town. Then you've got the market towns around that as well. So there's a real variety there. Uh, certainly Nottingham and Leicester has the same inner city problems as anywhere else. Um, Leicester at one point, and Nottingham, you know, Nottingham was known as Shottingham for a long time because the firearms are there. Leicester had the fourth highest violence rate in the in the country, violence figures in the country. Same problems, but there's just a lot, lot less of you. Um, different way of policing, really. I was still doing the level two test purchase work when I went went up there. So worked in places on Northampton and um, Preston. I started working on courses, so teaching other test purchasers how to how to do it. A different way. They had a different way of doing their training there. They started off with seven or eight, and they would maybe pass out four or five. So they were a lot more selective. Um, so, so yeah so it was it was really couldn't really afford a house in London knew we were going to sort of move out so that that's that's took, took me up there
1: did you always get away with this undercover stuff or did you get rumbled
0: uh, I think I got I got rumbled once when I was in London and it was my own fault because I was working at Battersea and I walked onto a plot which was an estate and there were seven or eight guys around a car and i was just too overconfident i think i'd been doing it for a while so it was a bit blatant so i <laughs> i effectively went up to these people on the car oh what's wrong with your car got any drugs <laughs> and it didn't go <laughs> didn't go mm-hmm. down very well no you know the for sort of thing clear off okay so walked off carried on through the estate walk back undeterred I went back the next day no. <laughs> I went on the estate but this time I was in like you have these big estates and you've got your one stop and your shops in the middle and a few seats everything in the precinct and I and I walked back to the estate uh, I walked back through towards this shop and there was a there was a guy that was sat on the um, sat on the sta- uh, on one of these uh, chairs like concrete chairs and he was coming over come over come over I went, all right, mate, and I used to use uh, the name Richie. All right, Richie, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah, fine, mate, how are you? You know, any, anyone about the day, anyone serving up? He said, mate, you've got to get out, you've got to get out of here. He says, so-and-so, so-and-so, is convinced you're a cop. What? He's absolutely convinced you're a cop. He says, if he sees you, he's going to stab you. Really? Yeah, yeah. He said, look, he's coming now, he's coming. And I turned around and this, this guy was walking across the precinct. So I walked into... Um, Walked into this, like, shop, this one shop, and just kept walking, <laughs> walked through the back, got out into the, onto the street and walked round. And I, I went back to where the operation was. And this happens sometimes. Sometimes your face doesn't fit, or you just get off to a bad start. And I said, like, I said, Look, I'm burnt here, really. I, I don't think I can go out. Yeah, fine, no problem. Sorry, somebody else.
1: So what was your first big challenge or incident in East Midlands?
0: Well, it was... Um, I was there for quite a long time. I was there sort of 20, 20 years. Oh, grief. Uh, and um, I mean, I'd, I started off as in a bit of a market town. Again, like I say, very, very different. You'd go to arrest... I, I remember going to arrest somebody once for drink driving in a white van. And um, he was driving around doing donuts, effectively, in his white van in the middle of the town... Town centre, sort of thing, gonna kill himself or somebody. Eventually, managed to stop it by right bumping the cars, dropped got in a car in front of him, got his keys, got him out. Absolutely, you know, paralytic when we got him out. We stood by the side of the road waiting for a van to turn up. Another car comes up, four blokes get out the back. What's happening? Sorry, mate, he's been arrested for drink driving. We're gonna just have to take him in. no no he's not. no he's coming with us. And this was like, no, no, you, you don't seem to understand. He's, this is completely new to me. He's been arrested. You know, he's in the, he's in the custody of the police. We're going to take. No, no, he's going to come to us. So they start to try and get him free. There's two of us. There's four of them. There's a bloke who's drunk. He keeps falling on the floor. Get our batons out and start battering them off, We're trying to get him off. They're trying to bundle him in the car. We're trying to pull him back. And um, eventually, another you know, car turns up, and they get in the car and drive off. But. That was like such an eye opener to me, and they will they will challenge the police. You know, as you get up into the counties, I found it more more violent. People were more likely to to front you out, more likely to, to to get violent with you because they knew that there wasn't many of you around. Is that because they were trying to rescue their friend, or they were trying to kidnap the guy? They were going to rescue him. Yeah. It was like, no, you're not arresting him. We're, we're taking him home. He'll be fine with us. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't seem to understand. <laughs> He's been arrested. Drink drive. Um. So, yeah, so, and then there would be times. I remember going up to this one village and there was a bloke trying to break into a car. And I went to, again, perhaps a bit naively, went to grab him. Right, you're arrested. Arrest, Can I have backup, please? Certainly it would be about 35 minutes. So there's this realization that, you know, I'll I, <laughs> try and get him into cuffs, try and get him into cuffs. And this bloke realizes. You know, I'll take this for 35 minutes. I can. chase... So he's running after me with the screwdriver, and then I'm running around a the car, and I'm running <laughs> after him trying to get the cuffs on, and uh, we're just trying to have this, you know, standoff until I can get more cops to me and chasing him around. And yeah, so it, it was very different. But good. I, again, I've been very lucky with teams. I had some. I had a really good team back you up. All you know, generally, all got on. Uh, people try and get to you. So.
1: DS, Robbery Squad, Serious Crime.
0: Yeah, so after a period of time, uh, I was I was moved to a DS. Originally, I was the investigation skills team, so I was teaching detectives in the CID course and vulnerable interview courses and investigative interviewing, and that was great. I went to Yemen during that period. And Yemen? I, yeah. I t- What's was that about? So the at that time, so this was 2006, they wanted... They they were trying to build up relations with Yemen. Basically, America then invaded Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, and Yemen was next on the list. So they had a president there called Ali Ali Abdul Salah, and it's all very tribal out there, and it's uh, what they call a green police, so it's part of their military. But the Brits and the Americans were trying to um, build bridges, with the Yemeni government, so they arranged. Somebody said, "Well, we'll send you, we'll send you some people out. that will teach your counter terrorist police how to properly interviewing without brutality, which is generally what they did." So uh, myself and another DS from Suffolk, um, we went out and um, Sussex. Sorry, went out and we spent five weeks out there. We ran two two week courses and it, it was it was really interesting uh, it's um fundamental islamic state uh, uh still had the old in we went to sana which is the capital um we we when we go out there realized nothing was done we were starting from scratch uh understood the tribal nature of everything so Ali Abdul Saleh was the president. The the Americans had said, right, you've got to have free elections, which was a joke. But whilst we were out there, the elections were on, so the UN were out there. Tensions were, were really high anyway. Um, but we, we ran these two courses. The police tend to... Everyone chewed a thing called CAT, if I'm to mention it, which is a leaf which has a bit like um, speed-type effects. And they had these big pouches in their mouth. And the effect is that between 8 o'clock at night and 2 o'clock in the morning, they're hyper. But we were working on Western time because they would all sit around and talk and everything. So we had to get them in the in a classroom at 8 o'clock in the morning and they'd all be more or less wanting to go because <laughs> they'd been up all night on CAT. Um, but we managed to run this course. We had a couple of good interpreters, translated all the British police... Um, pink and fluffy if you want a better word of interviewing into Arabic and it worked quite well it it did translate and the, the ways of doing it so we we ran these two ran these two courses we were on Yemeni TV um when we were handing over but uh, there, there was a few so there was there was a riot that kicked off in Sanaa uh, because of all the elections that was going on and we were in this hotel and there was literally a riot out the front and uh, I'll never forget that how they work there. There, there was a, a liaison officer, officer um, military officer and uh, he came to see us in the hotel as this riot kicked <sighs> off and there was literally things being thrown and the windows were going through and we And, you, you know, like, carry on... <gasps> <laughs> when the, the place is falling down, and everyone still would like some more tea, and yeah, it was a bit, it was a bit like that. And we were having these, these drinking this, these cups of tea and stuff. So how, how did the class go to Oh yeah, it was fine. Smash, <laughs> bam, all these noise going off. And then his son was there. This military officer, his son was there, and uh, he said, um, I can't remember his name, but he said, "Can you just go and check on the riot?" And he went, "Yes, dad." And this military officer took out his pistol, handed it to his 16-year-old son. The 16-year-old son cocked it, stuck it in his back, and walked out into this ride to see what was going. On. And then came back about five minutes later and he said, uh, "We think about five minutes, it'll have burnt itself out, and we'll, we can." Move. <laughs> so it was really strange. And then we went to we the only place you could the only place you could get a drink. We once went to a Sheraton hotel and um, I love Americans and I love America I've been there a few times i well, absolutely no issues with them but the, the, we, what we found over there is that there was a certain element that was quite rude to people and uh, we went to get this um, went to try and get a drink in the Sheraton Hotel uh, and the, in Yemen everyone walks around with the AK-47, everyone's what? got this big daggers on their belt sort of thing and um, we, were, we were in this bar, and a, and a girl, I presume American girl, walked past in a, in a bikini, went up to the bar. So as blokes do, you sort of look up, then go back to talking. These two Yemeni guys had looked, looked at it as well. And um, out of nowhere, this, this American guy came up in, in just a pair of trunks and walked over to these two guys that had AK-47s on the table and started berating them for looking at his girlfriend. And, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? To, what are you doing? Why, why are you looking at my girl? Why are you looking at my... He didn't come to us, but he had... And I don't... Fortunately, I don't think these two Yemeni guys knew what he was saying, because they were just sort of looking at him and laughing. But I thought, that is either a brave or, or really silly thing, thing to do. So after that, we, we thought, well, we're not going to get any drinks in hotels anymore. So we started using the embassies, so the British embassy served a bit of alcohol and the American embassy did. Uh, and we made some really good friends there. The people in the American embassy were absolutely fantastic. Marine Corps were there, couldn't do enough for us once we found out we were Brit cops. We used to get in, get, get, have a drink. And the, one of them said, oh, we're going on a, I think they called it a hack or something. But it's basically where you go running around the the outdoors and someone leaves a trail using blue paint and you follow blue paint <laughs> and uh, we thought oh well that'll be good it'd be an it'd be an evening out so we jumped into these met at the embassy jumped into these big four by fours There was like a big convoy of six or seven of them drove out to this Yemeni police station and uh, packed up the packed up the vehicles in the front and then everyone goes for a run and there's marines there we talked to the marines there's the you know uh, Media attaches or whatever they are, which are Secret Service, all these sort of stuff. And then it was really nice. And then we're running around and it's a good bit of exercise. And as we're coming back to the Yemeni police station, I look up and then on the horizon, I see these four explosions going off, like up into the air. And then out of the, out of the police station, all these police, Yemeni police, start running out <laughs> and going up this hill to find out what's going on. And this American... And I, I apologise to you American listeners for my <laughs> accent, but this um, big American Marine sergeant says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, as you can see, the police station is under attack. <laughs> Please make your way to the vehicles. So we, everyone's like, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go to this vehicle. So everyone's running the vehicle and they get the drivers. We all go off on convoy, We get onto this road. We do a left up a um, up the road as if we're going over a bridge. As we get up to the top of this road... We realised the bridge isn't finished. So we've just come to a dead end. <laughs> so we all, like there's eight Range Rovers all having to reverse back with their four ways going and the lights, thereby becoming the biggest target in southern or northern <laughs> Yemen at that time. So, yeah, so it was, that, that was, it was amusing more than anything. But at the time, think, <laughs> it was a crazy place. It was did, a crazy place. Did, did you place. not get intimidated in environments like that? No, I di- we didn't, didn't really, no. I mean, now, we, I mean, you have to be pretty confident anywhere to do that sort of job. And we'd been really well looked after. Uh, if anything went wrong, we would go to this officer and they would they would sort us out. And it was just like another experience. You're going to take it as as much as you can, really. But also whilst we were there, a young lad came up to us and said, um, I've been handing this to an interpreter. I've been handed a murder investigation to two bodies were found in a well in my in the village which i'm responsible for tied up two young lads and, and i don't know what to do about it and we were like oh yeah that is that is a problem isn't it i, I mean how do you do how do you deal with that because obviously they're in the middle of nowhere there's no cctv there's very very basic uh investigation resources at your disposal so we we did sit down with him and say right you need to work on Last person seeing alive, first person finding all your house to house the covers that well. Where's the bodies? Oh, bodies have gone off somewhere. I don't know where the bodies are. Well, oh, get get your bodies looked at. Find out what the knots were like, what lines of the rope come from? And we basically did him this double murder investigation plan. <laughs> and between doing our course, he was off trying to do this. I mean <laughs> I never found out what happened, but again I thought, well, that'd be another good story. Good day for a book.
1: So after Yemen there was two and a half years in TP operations and was that
0: dangerous? Um that one I yeah so that one I was running them really. Running so I had it. people working for me that were undercover officers. I had um safety teams, evidential teams in in, in interviewing teams. And we we worked throughout the East, East Midlands and
1: Did any of them get rumbled?
0: Um no, no they were very good. Some some characters. There were some characters there was one one guy who turned up and started cutting his face, so he looked more authentic and uh, i said i'm not having i'm not having you that's a, that's a said and he was scottish and he and he, he went in to get ready, so you all have your clothing <laughs> your, your your you know you're buying clothing, which is you know horrible stuff depending on what your your character is but you know, I, I I was generally the rougher end of the market. It's perhaps not surprising, but I, so I'd have um, an old jacket, old jeans, old trainers. You'd pour special brew over your clothing. Some people used to put urine on it and all this sort of stuff, just so you'd fit in. I had a horrible sleeping bag, which I, again I, I've drawn in the book. I was sleeping bag and a in a backpack and. So I used to, I used to look the part, wear an earring, not shave for a few days. But some, some of them used to take to massive extent, not shower for months on end, and my wife wouldn't put up with yeah. that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, so but one, one guy came, came, turned up to to be a a UC for us, and he said, "Oh, I'm just going to get ready," and then he came out and he had a bit cut in his. How have you done that, mate? He said, oh, "I did it with a... I thought he'd fallen over in the bathroom. So I did it with a razor. Why? Well, because, you know, and he he said, you know, drunks you see are around the city centre, they've all been fighting and no, that's that's not good. <laughs> so we'll we'll have a chat about that, but he didn't he didn't stay along. So th- there are they are character and you need to be a special character to do that job. Um and sometimes they particularly if they're very experienced, they think they know best, but when you go up that level, you've got the whole picture and If they go off script or they go out of their parameters, you've set them, that can cause loads of problems elsewhere. Um, But it was rewarding. You know, you get to the arrest phase, you get 50 arrests, you know, over five or six days. You get a load of people through court that nearly always plead guilty because the evidence is that good. Um, So it's extremely rewarding. But the danger side of me... The, no, I'm not really taking the risks at that point.
1: Then you become the force knife crime lead.
0: Yeah, so I spent a bit of time as a staff officer for the senior for the senior officer team. And um, yeah, so staff. So, so the, the the chap I used to be a staff officer for work with, he was. I think I've mentioned we had I had three friends that committed suicide, and unfortunately he was the he was the last one. Oh dear. But, but years before that, when we worked together, brilliant, brilliant guy as well, absolutely amazing guy. Um, I worked as 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 a staff officer, so I used to help with him, uh, and we went to a period in the city I was working with where we had eight knife murders in a six week oh. period, which young people. Two, of them were domestics, so they're a bit outliers. But the others were drugs debt, young, mm. young black or Asian males, and um, that we would normally get that amount in a in a year, and we we had six in eight weeks over oh. weirdly January February sort of time as well, mm. twenty seventeen or so. And um, yeah, so I I came involved in there because there would always be a gold meeting where you'd have the detective, the murder teams investigated, but they would always have a, a silver and a gold, st- who a senior officer that would be responsible as well. So we, we met the families on occasions, very hands-on, the, the senior officer team where I was working. Uh, I remember um, a senior investigating officer that worked with the murder team saying, if it wasn't for the skill of the surgeons, there'd probably be twice as many. Uh, and it was just got an absolute... Epidemic, really. Was it tit for tat between two gangs? Um, yeah, very often, or drug deals that have gone wrong, arguments over, over money. So it sort of combined then, really. So I became um, knife crime lead for the for my force, but I was also the force lead for stop and search. So stop and search, really, it, it has its critics, but it's a massive tool for... For, for a positive a tool for good, in my opinion, for police officers. Now, it gets a bad press, but if it's there to stop young people killing themselves by searching them and taking that knife off the street or even deterring them from carrying that knife, then in my professional opinion, it's worth everything that goes with it. But unfortunately... The, the stop and searches, just as we can reach this knife time ep- epidemic, and this wasn't just in the East Midlands, this was London as well, because I, I used to sit on the national working group for stop and search and knife crime. Just as we got to this epidemic of knife crime, the government, in their wisdom, were trying to reduce the number of stop and searches. So I, I can name the politician if you want me to. Go for it. Yeah, so Theresa May was the Home Secretary at that time. And for whatever reason, I think she'd been badly advised. She was certainly listening to pressure groups. Um, people like Stopwatch that were just, as far as I could see, because I did go to a few meetings, just wanted to try and hamstring the police. But she she took a lot of notice of them when she was on secretary and brought in this best use of stop and search scheme, which stated aim was to reduce the number of stop and searches. By over-regulating it, making officers um, over-scrutinising officers for the stops and search- searches they were doing, over-accountability, all it did is it it, it made another layer of bureaucracy, mm. and it and it and it worked. So f- cops, you know, five hundred searches a month in a force area would go down to p- perhaps thirty. You know, it it did, it had a massive job. But meanwhile, and that was probably reflected across the country. Meanwhile, you've got knife crime epidemics, people being being killed with knives because partly, I think, is because the searches weren't being done. And there was the, the element of um, the racial angle where young black males being disproportionately targeted... So what we would say to that is there were, there were young black males were four times more likely to be searched than white males, but then young black males were four more times likely to be victims of knife crime. So that there was, in a, in a way, it was proportionate to the threat that the police faced at that time. I can understand the if, if you're a young black male in anywhere in a city and you're constantly being stopped by police... I get that, and somebody is misusing their power there, that shouldn't be happening. It should be intelligence-led. But the other end of that, if that person is known to carry knives or is known to be involved in knife crime or drug crime, then there has to be some way of dealing with that individual. But what was happening was cops, rightly or wrongly, were backing way off from doing stop and search because they were getting criticized you know officers senior officers were pulling PCs into the, into their offices to say why have you done this stop and search and and you know and well that we don't think that was you know we didn't have the necessary grounds so i spent a lot of time coming up with training packages as a, as a knife knife crime coordinator stop and search lead training packages trying to get cops to understand their what constitutes reasonable to suspect, give them confidence in their, in their training, understand behaviour and, you know, understand what justifies a search, how to carry on any searches, how to record them properly. We did a lot of knife crime operations. I once um, put a knife arch in the middle of an estate <laughs> which, and, and put a knife arch at one end of the estate and drug zogs at the other and uh, ferried, <laughs> ferried the people in the estate. And I had the, the PCC with me, came out, and we thought it was great. And within two, three minutes, we were running around trying to catch people that are trying to dump drugs and knives. We nearly ended in a riot, <laughs> if I'm honest, <laughs> because the locals didn't take it very well, mm. and we had people in cars that were being shook and everything. Um, we managed to get everyone out safely. But it was the talk of that estate... For, for months, if not years afterwards. The fact that we would do that shows that we we didn't have any no-go zones. And I'll be honest, I didn't, <laughs> didn't do it again. I think the risk assessment would have been too much. But we did do it, and then people didn't know if we were going to... You know, is it going to be next week they're going to turn up with more drugs? drugs. We used to do lots of knife searches, knife operations. We, we did a knife search on a bridge that used to join two estates. One estate would find the other one. We'd lit up these knife arches like a Christmas tree, then do searches, and we once found a military intention tool that had been sharpened on one end. A group would come over, saw the knife arch, dumped it, which was the real... The, the the X factor with a knife arch really you you're very unlikely to get people going through it, but it it puts people off enough that they dump dump the stuff that they're carrying the weapons that they're carrying, um, yeah. And it was really rewarding rewarding work. Fortunately that year we still had four more people die of knife crime, uh, which is four too many. But you know we we were on a rate of of six in eight weeks.
1: Well, earlier on, you said that the knife, from your experience, was extremely efficient, ending people's lives. Is that based on attending autopsies for these people who had been, you know, died due to knife crime?
0: Yeah, I mean, the... Yeah, so, I mean, it's just... I mean, that was my own personal opinion. Mm. That's, that's what I found. I mean, knives have been around for thousands, thousands of years and they are an efficient tool mm. and easy to get, easy accessible, small. You don't need any skill to, to use it. Um, and very often, I mean, for every um, person who died from a knife attack, there could be 10, 10 stabbings, you know, as a, as a DS in serious crime as I was, every weekend you'd walk into three or four different stabbings and then there'd be another three or four in the night. And that was generally your core duties, mm. sending people down hospitals, getting CCTV from from um, area, taking witness statements. Was it, you know, baddie against baddie sort of thing, which means you'd struggle with the statements and all this sort of stuff. And, and the, the strange thing is, you know, we had been a team again I know like I repeat myself but I had an excellent CID team uh, when I first took over as DS and serious crime team but there wasn't many of us, seven or eight and you'd walk in and you'd have maybe three people that were in for serious crime you'd have other ones that were victims in hospitals uh, you'd get another perhaps two, three throughout the day all being held, all being managed by relatively small teams but if one of them dies then you suddenly get major crime come in and they will come in with fleets and, you know, fleets and fleets of people. And I had um, a terrible, terrible thing, but we were once had a really busy, really busy weekend. And, um, yeah, really busy weekend. And uh, running out of staff, number of people in the bin, people that they needed dealing with, people stabbing. And then a call came in, a woman... Had killed her own children with knives. What? They'd hidden underneath the bed, and she'd lost it and stabbed them both to death. The initial call came in. Oh my in, God! Initial call came in. Um, a woman stabbed two of her children, and I was thinking, "How am I going to staff that? How am I going to staff? am I going to staff this? I've got nobody left." And you know, it's, it's my internal shame, really. Then they said, "Oh, the kids have died," and <gasps> you like. That is absolutely awful, terrible, but I, I'm not dealing with it anymore. You know, it's it, it's going to somewhere. It's going to somewhere else. Um was yeah, that a it's, mental
1: health case?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't have any other than the initial call coming into us to say this is happening. It's coming your way, but once once the children had died, she. It was one of these ones. Where, it was where she. My understanding was, and I don't know the mass power details. She couldn't face her children growing up in the world, as it was. So she decided... She tried to kill herself, but didn't. Uh, yeah, really, really terrible thing.
1: So for young people who are watching this who are involved in knife crime,
0: can you just tell them how easy it is to die? It is, it is easy because like they were saying... That, so a good example is the Lee Duffy case, which I know you've talked about. Oh, yes. Um again, from my neck of the woods. So what happened with Lee Duffy is he went out, my understanding is he went out and uh, he picked a fight with somebody and that person stabbed him once underneath the armpits a caught an artery. So what can happen in there? So, he, he, And whether that, and I think he was, he was the chap who did it was done for manslaughter rather than murder, which you can sort of see. But the, the, the thing with knives is you can catch anybody and catch an artery. If... If you're fighting or running away from somebody, after that, you will bleed out in about thirty seconds to a minute. You'll you'll have lost your critical mass of blood within thirty seconds, and that's how easy it is. And it ruins the lives of the side. Somebody's lost their child because they're very often their children. You know, you know, not much more than eighteen, if if that. Then the person who done it, they go into prison. They're not going to have much of a, of, of a life. Now, even when they come out and they're going to have that for the rest of their rest of their lives. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's so easily done. It's So that's what the knife is designed to do. It's been designed, you know, and nowadays, you know, we used to spend a lot of time trying to pick, find people that were selling them online, commando knives. And it got to a stage where the knives were even designer. There, there would be, Colored, the handles would be colored and lit up for children. So they used to look like Nerf guns, but with but with knives and the blades were long, sli- thin blades that were just designed to go through your ribs, to catch an artery down down the top of your neck. So, yeah, it it it's just how many people go out intending to kill somebody else with a knife, is is probably a lot lower than how many actual people end up doing it because it it, it can be so easily done and and the the good thing is we catch them you know it's very rarely we don't catch people that have committed murder with an with a knife you know they've got CCTV every day the forensics are so good now someone tends to can also you know bubble them up top them in uh, so they're not going to get you're not going to get away with it the risk is 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 massive and they could and i said this at the time i wrote a piece about stop and search um a few years ago the government could stop it overnight with a 5 year sentence automatically for carrying a knife but they won't because they know it disproportionately targets young black men and they haven't got the pla- they haven't got the places in prison uh, to, to do it but i i think it is worth having those people go into prison for 5 years that message will get round within 6 months um and, and it it would stop it. It would stop it.
1: How did you become aware of the Lee Duffy case, Robert?
0: Um, he's from Middlesbrough, and I'm from that sort of um, area. So he that was quite a high profile knife knife crime incident.
1: Yeah, we've had a lot of people on over the years talking about Lee Duffy's life story as well. Quite fascinating. Yeah. All right. So then you became a uniformed
0: inspector. Yeah, so I was a detective sergeant for about 15 years. Uh, 15 years? Yeah, decided I'd, I'd get promoted. So went back into uniform, uh, went through a few processes. I was almost given up. I <laughs> 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 went through, I think, about three processes. Eventually got promoted and uh, spent a little bit of time back on as an operational inspector, uh, response inspector, Uh, And then an opportunity came up for me to go into the control room as a control room inspector. So I did that, and then part of the role for that is um, initial tactical firearms commander and pursuit commander. So I did that for about 18 months. Really strange environment, the control room. Really strange. Um, You would go from dealing with a firearms job to talking to people that had fallen out over who ate what in the fridge it was just really strange <laughs> and I, um, it was okay it was okay um, I, I managed to I managed to get, get through it firearm stuff was very very interesting you go on a course and I'm, I'm not carrying the guns I'm setting strategy I'm looking at legal implications briefing the firearms teams uh, that in the, the main were excellent um, doing pursuits which are very often more dangerous than the firearms jobs, uh, where you're the pursuit commander. The, 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 I think you had a traffic officer recently there, excellent at these sort of things, fortunately. And you put your you put your career in their hands when they're doing the the uh, the 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 chases and trying to block people off. But they are they are fantastic at what they do. Um, so you were
1: issuing the commands for that one. I
0: was I, basically I, I give I can. Start it off and uh, give some parameters of what can and can't be used for, this, for the pursuits. You then hand it over to the experts. They will go and try and get the cat. But I can call it off as well. So if I think it's getting too dangerous, I can say, okay, let them go. Organise the helicopters, helicopters. I once had a, I had a uh, pursuit that went on 45 minutes, and it went across three counties. It started in one and finished in Thames Valley down near Oxford. And the idea is every time it goes across a county boundary, you offer it to the control inspector for that, for that area, who of course says, no, no, you can keep it. You can keep it. Because <laughs> the, the, the radios are so good and they don't want to touch it in case something happens. <sighs> um, so yeah, so we had one for like 45 minutes to so we get them. And, uh, and Did you get that guy? Yeah, we got them. They very, very rarely get, get away. What was he running from? Um, I can't remember. It started off, I think it was a robbery. Robbery in Nottingham. Yeah. And then started off, went down south on the M1, then branched off over, went over to Thames Valley, really moving at, at speed. Cars were behind them through Warwickshire, ended up in Thames Valley. But I, I was just listening to it on the radio, got a helicopter up, and the helicopters are invaluable, really. We'll always chase it. And sometimes if it was local, you could see on the C- CCTV how it ended. But... um the other, I suppose, the other thing that happened there was a, another friend of mine committed suicide while I was I was oh on no. duty, and uh, he he committed suicide. So I managed the initial part of that job, and oh. uh, that was a, so the second friend of mine that committed suicide, and that that did play on my mind, it did play on my mind for a long time.
1: You were working with missing persons.
0: Yeah. Um, so we last. Job, I wanted to go out as a detective. So I managed to get an opportunity to go as a detective inspector uh, for my final year in the missing persons team, which was a real, real challenge, not particularly well resourced. But if you speak to people, they will say, well, missing persons are one down from homicide, really, because a lot of people turn up to an awful lot of risk. Child sexual abuse, uh, girls going off from children's homes, being exploited, boys going off being exploited within the county lines. You're trying to assess what the risk is to them whilst they're, di- whilst they're missing. We had girls that would come back with bruises on their necks, wouldn't speak to us, of course, but they turned up alive, so are no longer missing persons. You wonder how often they, 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 they would uh, do that. Um, people going off to commit suicide, there was always, you generally knew when they were going to do it, uh, the the you know the rates for male young male suicides is a disgrace you know in terms of what's not done about it but it tends to be young white males will, will commit suicide or even middle aged males and they would generally leave all their bits on the table car keys bank details wallet change if you, if you if if we got reports of that they were probably already dead and generally go off and uh, hung themselves.
1: So if you've got, like, a list of missing persons, what realistically would you expect to solve? Well, that's a good question. Like what percent?
0: We'd solve a lot of them, but very often they came back to us. We, they'd come back to us. We'd use a lot of phone work, a lot of CCTV. I had a very dedicated staff that were excellent. There were, again, a lot of it was through COVID or the hangover of COVID, so they'd be running off their computers patching themselves into phone records, patching themselves into CCTV records, um, doing a lot of it just from, from a desk coordinating. Officers that were already massively busy. But you, every so often you'd get one that would turn to a murder. So you had to treat them all like they were, they were murders. You had to put them in high, medium and low risk. Didn't get many low risks. They were medium and high. And then, you know, you give them... <laughs> I remember putting somebody in a medium risk, going to bed... Thinking it over, no, I'm not happy getting up at four o'clock in the morning, <laughs> logging back on, you know, I've changed my mind. I've got to point it to high high risk. You're managing that risk day in, day out. Um, but the percent, percent, I think you'd maybe have th- maybe 20 or 30 on a board every day and there'd be ones coming off and ones going on because they turned up and new ones come on. I'd say maybe 10 of them were high risk. The rest would be mediums one or two laws what if it was a ch- a child did you come across that yeah yeah so we did use to get that and then you you would you would get the child that had wandered off from their from their mum or dad in um, a shopping centre and then it's all hands to put everyone stops what they're doing gets down there tries to find them um, and that, and the, it, there were innocent sort of explanations, really. Generally, well, always we f- we found them eventually. I didn't have one, which was a abduction or anything. You used to get lots of rumours of, of abductions. There's always men in white vans, really. We'd hmm. go around the the rumour would start on the estate. There's a man in a white van trying to get kids in the back of the car. Didn't, fortunately, didn't ha- have any of them. Uh, but only through the grace of God, really. There, there was some. Uh, particularly the girls were taking huge risks going around London some going missing in East Midlands going to London going to Edinburgh Liverpool Manchester being sexually exploited we had one that just disappeared just before I left stepped out of our front door from a very nice Asian family never been in trouble with the police before went to school disappeared just disappeared stepped out the front door no CCTV no one had seen where she'd gone A phone, when we found a phone was going backwards and forwards between uh, Bradford and Leeds, backwards and forwards, I was convinced it was a murder, it was a homicide investigation. I took it to my superintendent. I haven't got the resources to deal with this. This needs to go to somebody else's major crime. For whatever reason, she took one look at it and said, no, it can stay with you. Fortunately, I had a very, very good intelligence DI who could help me with it. We put two officers up to Leeds and Bradford to try and find out what was going on. West Yorkshire police helped us. But I was thinking she's going to turn up. She's, she's going to turn up dead at the moment. And that that phone is just in someone's car. Um, ran it, I think I've travelled up there, ran it for over a weekend. Monday morning she turns back up again. Wow. But had been sexually abused over mm-hmm. the weekend, been passed around a ring of mails. Mm-hmm. She basically just stepped into a car. But somebody she met on her phone travelled down from Leeds Bradford, picked her up, took her up there. How old was she? As I remember rightly, she was fifteen, sixteen. Oh my God! So she was a high risk per, uh, missing persons for for a long for you know straight away, and it's you know you get that spidey sense, whatever you want to call it. That well, oh, this isn't this isn't this isn't good. Um, but th- thankfully, she came back alive, but was in a terrible state, as you can imagine.
1: This is the danger of the phones and the internet, isn't it? They they can access the kids, can't they? The predators.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the people that do this are experts at it. Mm. You know, your your average paedophile is despicable and devious and knows exactly what to do. Uh, and until there's that education, a bit like the knife crime. Until like there's that education to, to children about the dangers of it, be- because they were, they can pretend to be anybody nowadays, and they they will have. You know, you, you've got this uh, the way AI is going to go. You, they're going to project themselves as whatever they want to be. Um, so yeah, it is. Um, very very sad it still goes on now have no reason to believe it doesn't it hasn't stopped that exploitation of children um but i say mainly i was with the missing person but we used to overlap with all sorts of stuff in missing persons um it was it was very very challenging and i think i the, as i did it it was going from the control room to that it was out of a frying pan into another hot frying pan and um it was rewarding in some ways as well, but it was very, very challenging. And then you come to finish and there's no debrief, there's no safety net. I literally was doing high-risk missing persons reports on the morning I left the police and then had to hand it up to somebody else. I didn't have anybody to take over from me. And that was like on the Wednesday. I handed me kit on the Thursday. I went for a drink on the Friday. And that was me out of the police after 28 years. So looking back
1: then... Did you think you were treated fairly and it was a healthy career or like some of the ex-cops come on and they've said they were treated unfairly and they've got trauma and PTSD and they didn't get any help, things like that? Um,
0: I think I was generally treated fairly in as much as I think I got what I I deserved. I worked hard. I was very, very passionate about what I did. Um, I think I had a bit of a disadvantage, didn't have a great education, increasingly coming from the military was a disadvantage. As, you, as, you, as the police went on, it became more academic, became more they people university backgrounds. If you look at how the police recruit now, there's very little chance of somebody like me leaving school at 15, no qualifications, being in the army, getting into the police now. They'll only do it for um, apprenticeship, and I think the police will lose a lot because of that, because you're generally dealing with people that come from my background. That is is what you're doing. I don't... I, I wouldn't say I was treated unfairly, but I left with a lot of baggage. I had a very dark six months after I retired. My brain just struggled to cope with not having that adrenaline every day. Um... Did things
1: surface that you'd suppressed? Because you said you know you go into a situation and you're shut down from an emotional reaction, aren't you? Because you're looking at what could happen next, this, that, and the other. Yeah. But once all that adrenaline has stopped at the end of your career, did 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 the emotional you know things that you'd suppressed did they come to the surface?
0: Yes. Yeah, I, I did. Yeah. When I when I first when I first stopped, so I I came out in the no, November and. Very, very dark Christmas. Um, brain was just constantly going, wasn't sleeping. Um, I felt I was either going to choke to death or I had something wrong with my brain.
1: When you said it was constantly going, was that thoughts? Was that images? Was it both?
0: A bit of both. It was Somebody described me like the roulette wheel. Someone spun it and then they, they take the ball out to say, right, you're finished with the police, but the roulette, roulette wheel still goes around and you're trying to stop it and it And it's not, so it was thoughts, images, guilt, you know, yes, I've done a lot of good things, I'd also done things where I thought I could have done better with that, um people that had died, and then the third person I knew committed suicide in the march, mm. ten days after they retired from the police um it's you know the 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 mental health side of stuff after the police. It's getting better, but even now it's at very early stages. Um Flint House do a good scheme now for retired police officers for mental health. Police care, very good. But there's, um, you know, a, a police officer commits suicide every two weeks. Oh, my goodness. Yeah.
1: That one that you said, your third friend... Was that because they were going through that dark period that you were going through, do you think?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think he'd suffered from depression before um, and I think he'd resigned himself to it when he when he said he was going to retire when he did. I, 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 I saw him maybe a week before I retired. Looking back, he didn't seem his normal... It's easy looking back in hindsight, but he didn't seem his normal self. And I think he'd resigned himself to the fact that... That was what he was going to do when he when he finished. But um, I said he was a senior officer in the East Midlands. Absolutely brilliant, brilliant man. Could have went on to done a you know a lot of lot of good. I'll, I'll never. No, I don't think anyone will know. Why he did what he did? What got you through your dark period then? Um, uh, mixture of things, mindfulness. Which everybody sort of <laughs> rolls their eyes at, but actually I found it really That's good. That's great,
1: mindfulness meditation.
0: <laughs> Mindful meditation, um, medication. I was on medication for a bit because I had to see a doctor, and I, um, they'd said, "Well, we think just to get you through this tough period, going to a bit of medication." Which I was against, but I did, and it, to be fair, it was a, it was a good tool in the box for it Because a lot of people fall period.
1: back on alcohol, don't they?
0: Yeah, I, I was. I was never, I was never a heavy drinker. Um, I just took it. I just started to get my my brain in gear. So I was I was directed to some of the mental health support, um, things that um, programs that the council had weirdly that I thought were very good. Um, you know, very often I couldn't get. Up, it was a struggle to get out of bed. So I just do a few hours. Uh, do some of the processes Um, and it and it was a slow process I went to I took the kids to the Lake District Uh, we went with our family glorious winter weather weather in in February and um, went to Ullswater and Scarfell Pike is (laughs) in the distance they're covered in snow and I was in a pretty bad way then suffering from tinnitus Mm. headaches blared vision, feeling dizzy, but I thought I'm going to set myself a chance. I'm going to walk Scarfell Pike in six <laughs> months. And I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And that'll show that I'm, that I'm well. So I went back and the holiday was, was, was quite, um, refreshing. Sit in a lovely place, <laughs> watch videos with the kids, uh, DVDs with the kids, you know, took it easy, <laughs> but st- still when I got back, I was, back to the home life, it was still tough. But then it just started, as the weather got better, I started to turn corners, I could do mm. more, could get out more, started doing a bit more exercise um, and started doing a bit more walking. And then, right, I thought the time has come mm. for me to walk Scarfell Pike. Mm-hmm. So I took myself off in my camper van, parked up and went and walked Scarfell Pike. And I, I put a thing on Facebook and I haven't, really talked a lot about that six months. The people I was close to were obviously aware, but I I put something on Facebook just for my police colleagues to say that I was pretty down when when I came out of the police. But today I've done Scarfield Pride, I promised myself I would do it. And the same strategy applies, you know, plan your way out, lots of little steps and ask for help if you need it. Um, so yeah, so and and that that turn a corner that was eighteen months ago. You know, now back working, doing the writing, which is is that cathartic the writing? It was it was with this story, yes, uh, because I think I had that uh, that incident from when I was a young police officer in my mind that I wanted to tell because of the military connections, because of how things were at um, Knightsbridge, because. Of the link with me with uh, with uh, the the investigation because it ended up with a good result and because I had this stuff going through my head around the undercover work and 1996 was a great year a great year to be in London it was an exciting time I just felt that all the elements could be pushed together into into a, a, uh, an exciting story that would um, explain the two parts of my sort of working career, really. Uh, I was really pleased with it. You know, I got a lot of help from a um, fantastic writer called Matthew Dunn. He uh, he helped me with it. Um, and, um, I mean, it's all my own work, but he he helped me and give me some structure around the writing. And, uh, yeah, I'm really, really pleased with it.
1: Congratulations, Robert, on coming through all this and being an author now and coming here and sharing your story we appreciate that is there anything you would like to say to the viewers who've been sitting here watching this now for the last two plus hours no thank
0: you thank you for watching thank you for listening Um, if you can take something away about the dangers of knife crime uh, you know look after your your children um, understand that police officers are humans too and we don't always get it right Um, you know if if that can be the takeaway from it then that's great
1: Appreciate that. Great way to end it. And here's Robert's book. So link will be in the description box below this video, wherever you are watching this in the world. And can people contact you on socials and follow you?
0: Um, yes, so I'm on Facebook, Robert Messenger, and I have a email address, which is Robert Messenger Author at uk.
1: So let us know what you thought about this in the comments and please support Robert by clicking on his links. Take care out there wherever you are in the world. And if you are tempted or involved in knife crime, take heed of what Robert said. He's seen what happens, how easy it is. Just like that, goes in, gets an artery, bam, gone. Or if you're the perpetrator, 10, 20, 30 years in prison, it's just not worth the risk. All right, much love and respect. Take care, everyone. Cheers. A huge thank you, Robert. Thank you. very very much. Thank you very much. Yes, yes. That was fantastic.